I have tried to compose this opening several times, and I have deleted all of them, because today's episode has been incredibly difficult to write. Going into this series, I was no Charles Chaplin expert. I knew the basic details of his story, and I knew that there was controversy in his personal life. But as I dug deeper, I came to learn things that shook my understanding of both the man and his films. And now I am facing the question we all must face as modern consumers. How do we separate the art from the artist? And I don't know the answer. I like to think of myself as someone who, for the most part, can separate the two. That at its best, film wrestles with moral and ethical complexities that it is unfair to, for lack of a better word, cancel an artist who also wrestles with these issues in their personal life. I also think that the modern world is overbranded. Branding was something that used to be applied to cookies and dishwasher detergent, and now people are brands. We expect them to fit into nice, easy-to-understand boxes. And when their box is something we don't agree with, or the individual does something to betray their brand, we get very upset. But then sometimes you read a story that blows all these intellectual arguments out of the water, and that's what happened for me. Today's episode will contain some brief moments that are sexually graphic. If that's not something you want to hear or you have kids with you, you might want to exercise discretion. Now, it was not my intention to turn this show into an exploration of Chaplin's sex life, but I think you will find, as I did, that it is impossible to tell the story without it. Now look, this show is neither a grocery store gossip rag or a chauvinist body count of Chaplin's sexual partners. So what I hope to do is use his story and his behavior as a means for learning about the lives of the incredibly interesting women he was associated with, as well as exploring the greater social context of gender and politics in the late teens and 20s. And so without further ado, join me as we go into part three of Charlie Chaplin. Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate, everybody. I'm your host, Aaron Strand, and as you can probably tell from the runtime, this one's gonna be a doozy. We've got a lot to cover, but first, real quick, if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to our first episodes, go back, check them out. If you like the work that we're doing, you can help us out by hitting that subscribe button, giving us a rating, and if you're feeling really generous, leave a review. This is a young podcast, and that kind of support is so important. And if you have any questions, thoughts, burning opinions that you want to get off your chest, please email me, behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. We did our first mailbag episode a few weeks ago. I thought it was really fun, and I got some really great feedback on it, so I would love to hear from you. Finally, I have some additional sources that I used for this episode that I would like to mention at the top. There's Tramp, The Life of Charlie Chaplin by Joyce Milton. Charlie Chaplin, A Brief Life by Peter Aykroyd, Chaplin, Genius of Cinema by Jeffrey Vance, 
and Wife of the Life of the Party by Lita Gray and Jeffrey Vance. I'll have a full list of sources down in the show notes if you want to check out any of these amazing books. So, having said all that, let's get back into the story. When we last left off, Chaplin, the most famous entertainer in the history of the world, had just capped off a prodigious four-year run of shorts with his World War I comedy, Shoulder Arms. But the exuberance of this career achievement and the post-war armistice were soon overshadowed by rumors that the 29-year-old comedian had secretly married a 17-year-old actress named Mildred Harris. Now let's just address the obvious. Chaplin marries a teenager. And this will not be the last teenager that he marries. I personally find it disturbing that many of the Chaplin biographies lean into armchair psychoanalysis to explain these facts away. They theorize that he was so fixated on his childhood crush, the 15-year-old Hetty Kelly, that he couldn't escape his attraction to teenage girls. What a load of hero-worshipping bullshit. I mean, come on. Most people fall in love as teenagers. That doesn't mean they seek out teenagers as sexual partners for the rest of their lives. The subtext of what they're saying, in my opinion, is that Chaplin was somehow too sensitive of an artist to break free from his youthful infatuation. Give me a break. Now, on the other side, I think it's equally unhelpful to view Chaplin's behavior through a completely modern moral lens, such as a 2016 Vice article I found with the subtle headline of, Charlie Chaplin was a sadistic tyrant who fucked teenage girls. And while I get what they're going for, the lack of nuance robs us of an opportunity for deeper understanding and honestly gives fuel to a whole bunch of wild QAnon-style conspiracies that Chaplin was some kind of ringleader of a pedophilic Hollywood cult, which is nonsense. Adding to the confusion is the fact that Chaplin goes out of his way to hide this part of his life. In his autobiography, he writes, quote, I believed sex meant the loss of a good day's work. I suppose a dissertation on one's libido is expected of an autobiography, although I do not know why. To me, it contributes little to the understanding or revealing of character. Cold, hunger, and the shame of poverty are more likely to affect one's psychology. This is just a straight-up lie. His autobiography was written in an attempt to try to clean up his image after multiple sex scandals. The shame he felt about his own promiscuity have led some to speculate that he was possibly abused as a child. No proof of this exists whatsoever, but honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. At the very least, we do know that his childhood was chaotic and that he lacked any kind of positive role model for having a healthy sexual relationship. He had no coping skills to deal with the crippling shyness and insecurity about his looks that he felt as a young boy. And when fame, power, and money suddenly turned him into a desirable sexual partner, his festering inferiority complex fueled what we call today a sex addiction. And in the end, like all addictions, he did nothing but hurt himself and the people around him. Author Joyce Milton writes, quote, Chaplin's tendency to swing between periods of mild depression and hyperexcitability was becoming more pronounced. The tramp was the depressed half of the equation, a man of good intentions but fated to perceive the world around him as shabby and gray. Charles Chaplin was the manic persona, addicted to the pursuit of women, money, and petty legal squabbles. His complete lack of empathy and self-awareness when it came to women was exacerbated by the rapidly changing social relationship between genders that was occurring at this time. The late teens and early 20s was quite possibly the greatest gender power shift since the fall of tribal matriarchal societies, and it instilled 
a massive amount of future shock for the people living through it. One of my first thoughts upon learning that Chaplin married a 17-year-old was, well, it was a different time. People married younger back then. Well, it isn't so simple. The age of consent in California was 18 years old, and it's a fascinating story as to why that is. Age of consent laws were a relatively new legal advance and were a part of the overall women's rights movement of the late 19th century. Age of consent in the United States was originally based on English common law, and it was more or less 10 to 12 years old. Basically, the all-male lawmakers took the approach that once a girl menstruated, she was of age. Some states set the age of consent as low as seven. There were no legal protections for girls who were raped. Men could pretty much always claim she consented, or that no meant yes. Public displays of sexuality were also repressed, and the mildest actions could be blamed for tempting men. As if this wasn't bad enough, women and girls who had sex outside of marriage were shunned and excluded from society. These ruined or fallen women were denied marriage and job opportunities. Many of them had to turn to prostitution in order to survive, which only subjected them to more abuse, plus the rampant syphilis and gonorrhea, which at this time was more widespread than all other infectious diseases combined. Early women's rights activists sought the legal means of holding men accountable for their actions and giving women the right to control what happened to their bodies, their children, and their future. But the social mores that forbid talking about sex in public prevented them from even arguing for these changes without being publicly shunned. Now, things started to change a little bit in Britain in 1885, when a series of scandalous articles about underage sex workers in London's brothels titled The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon caused an international outrage. Now, these articles were definitely a Victorian satanic panic QAnon event, but instead of storming the parliament, people instead practiced actual democracy and lobbied their representatives to raise the age of consent in Britain to 16. But in the United States, where the social conversation around sex was even more puritanical than Victorian London, women's rights leaders had a tougher time. So to get around all this sex talk, they had to blame something else, something that everyone could agree led to sexual misbehavior but wasn't so private, and they found their target in alcohol. By the late 19th century, the Women's Christian Temperance Union was the most powerful women's organization in the country. Their long-term president, Frances Willard, used the fight to ban alcohol as a clever smokescreen to talk about women's rights. Despite being a total Protestant zealot, to her credit, she worked with a liberal author and fallen woman, Helen Hamilton Gardner, and together they crafted a campaign to petition states to raise their age of alcohol consumption, and as an afterthought, we can raise the age of consent as well. These petitions became incredibly popular, with tens of thousands of women, many of whom had previously not been politically active, joining the cause. They applied pressure to the media, enlisted legislators' wives and daughters, built relationships with men in power, and resisted the intransigence of men, particularly in the South. Now, there was a loophole with the age of consent laws they were proposing. In keeping with biblical precedent, age of consent could be ignored as long as the couple was married. These laws are still on the books. Child marriage is still legal in most places in the United States. And while this is pretty indefensible now, back then I can see a little more where they were coming from. The legal and financial obligations that came along with marriage, even when forced, is definitely preferable to having millions of fallen women in the streets. 
However, male lawmakers resisted age-of-consent laws, arguing that innocent men would be ensnared into marriages by conniving girls who consented to sex and later threatened to press charges. They were awful to the women fighting for these changes, publicly shaming them, mocking their demands. Nevertheless, they persisted. Women realized that in order to change these laws, they needed women in office. And to get in office, they needed the right to vote. In 1894, Carrie Clyde Holly was one of the first three women legislators to be elected in the United States. She joined the Colorado State House of Representatives and became the first woman to successfully write, argue for, and get a bill drafted into law. That bill, the Holly Law, raised the age of consent in Colorado to 18. Originally, she wanted to raise it to 21, but was forced to compromise. Now, this was a genuine political moment. And when something that seemed impossible suddenly became true, and it set off a tsunami of social change. Wherever women gained public office or the right to vote, age of consent laws were soon to follow. In California, women's suffrage barely passed on the ballot. But as soon as it was legal, the state managed to raise the age of consent to 18, with de facto rape charges for any offenders carrying prison sentences of up to 30 years. In many ways, the campaign to raise the age of consent in this country was the catalyst of the women's suffrage movement. It mobilized thousands of women who had previously been apolitical, culminating in the 19th Amendment, which gave women the universal right to vote in 1920. While this may seem like an ethical no-brainer, it wasn't at the time. The women's rights movement was intrinsically tied with the temperance movement. It's no coincidence that 1920 was both the year of women gaining universal suffrage and the beginning of prohibition. And from the perspective of many cosmopolitan, artistic liberals, these movements were the work of a bunch of conservative religious nutjobs. These progressives were busy rebelling against the centuries of sexual repression, Victorian ideals, and American puritism, and now a bunch of stuck-up Protestants are going to take away the booze and say who can and can't have sex? Early Hollywood was filled with so-called free thinkers whose progressive values looked a bit more like libertarian anarchism. They were a lot like the free-love hippies of the 1960s who would recycle these ideas decades later. Sex, drugs, and silent film. It was in this rapidly changing political and social environment that Charlie Chaplin first met Mildred Harris. Mildred has gotten a bad rap from many of the Chaplin biographies. She's described either as a ditzy idiot, Chaplin himself wrote in his autobiography that she was, quote, no mental heavyweight. Others depict her as a conniving social climber who used Chaplin to further her own career. Instead, I want us to think of her as a well-meaning, ambitious girl who is unfortunately as naive as any other 17-year-old. And in case you're wondering, different sources have claimed different ages than 17, but I cross-checked and corroborated as many documents as I could find, and I'm pretty sure this number is accurate. She was 17 when they married. She was originally from Cheyenne, Wyoming. Her parents divorced when she was very young, and she moved with her mom to Southern California. Her mother became a supervisor in the wardrobe department of Triangle Films, and as one of Hollywood's first-ever momagers, she was soon pushing Mildred into her first screen appearance at the age of 10. Now, her first gig was in a Western short directed by Francis Ford, John Ford's older brother, and produced by Thomas Ince, the father of Westerns, who we will talk about later in this story. She was known for her girlish looks, her doe eyes, her incredibly long, wavy hair. 
She went on to star as the original Dorothy in several of author L. Frank Baum's film adaptations of his Oz books. She also had a small role in the Babylonian orgy scene in D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, which is number 93 on the Sight and Sound Top 100 list. I would highly recommend you listen to the episode of Seen and Heard, where Greg and Jackie talk about this film. It is fantastic. She was now 16 and had reached a stage that is common for child actors, when inflated ambition and premature sexualization clash with a desire to catch up on the fun that she had missed while working through her youth. Her good looks seemed to guarantee her future success, and the attention she got from men, particularly having never had a father growing up, was taken as genuine love. Possibly, as a way of marketing her adultness, the tabloids were already filled with stories about her romance with various suitors. She had just gotten over her crush on Douglas Fairbanks, and was supposedly pursuing actor Elliot Dexter, who was 48 years old. Early in the year 1918, Chaplin, still struggling over his breakup with Edna Purviance, was invited to a party at a beach house. His friend, Eddie Sutherland, offered to pick him up. In the back seat was Mildred. Eddie later said, quote, They had never met before, and boy, they got together like glue in two minutes and a quarter. Chaplin wrote in his autobiography about what happened later that night, quote, I dropped her off at her apartment. However, with the impression that she was a, the only possible interest she had for me was sex, and to make a romantic approach to it, which I felt would be expected of me, was too much of an effort. But she kept telephoning. Mildred tells a slightly different story of what happened. Quote, At once he became attentive. We used to go for long walks on the beach. He talked about his life. He told me he was very lonely. He said he needed a home and someone to care for him. We went together, as country folks say, for four months. During this time, Chaplin did receive a letter from his first crush, Hetty Kelly. We don't know what she wrote, other than that she mentioned she was under the weather. But his response has survived, and this fact alone is telling. His press secretary, Carlisle Robinson, estimated that despite receiving millions of fan letters, he couldn't remember Charlie ever writing more than a dozen responses in his life. Chaplin wrote in his letter, quote, Well, physically I am perfect. Morally, well... I am all that could be desired for a young man of 29 years. I'm still a bachelor, but that is not my fault. I suppose I have arrived at the pessimistic age of youth. But still there is hope, for I have that priceless quality of being curious about life and things which keep up my enthusiasm. Do you remember, Hetty, I once told you that money and success were not everything? At the time, I had not had the experience of either, but I felt it was so, and now I have experienced both. I find that the pursuit of happiness can only be had from within ourselves and the interest of others. I'm sure Chaplin meant this when he wrote it, but he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. He protected money and fame like a wounded animal. His so-called curiosity about life was a carefully constructed act that was beginning to bubble into a manic frenzy. It makes it really hard to tell this story because he's not consistent. He had no clue of who he was or what he stood for. He'd say one thing and do another, letting his undeniable charm and playfulness smooth over the obvious cracks in his personality. He's a serial improviser who just yes-ands his way through life. Now, he would justify this to himself by claiming that basically everyone is a fraud. He wrote, quote, Poverty taught me nothing but a distortion of values and overrating of the virtues and graces of the rich. Wealth and celebrity, on the contrary, taught me that men of eminence, when I came close to them, were as deficient in their ways as the rest of us. 
to know the fallacy of the college accent in estimating the merit and intelligence of a man, and to know that intelligence is not necessarily a result of education or a knowledge of the classics. As their secret romance proceeded, Chaplin and Mildred were encouraged by none other than D.W. Griffith, who had a history of being involved with much younger women, such as the star of Birth of a Nation, Lillian Gish. During a night out, he suggested, Mildred, why don't you marry Charlie? According to Mildred, she had never thought about marriage until he said that. Now, it could be that Mildred and her mother were ambitiously trying to get hitched to the richest and most eligible bachelor in Hollywood. But if that's true, so what? Yeah, it's manipulative, but at this time, a single mother and a young woman had to do everything in their power to secure their future. Rumors began circulating in the press about the Chaplin-Harris relationship. Harris had always lied about her age to suit whatever type of role she wanted, so the issue of her true birthday was never considered. Shortly after the success of Shoulder Arms, Mildred announced to the press that she was pregnant, and Chaplin was trapped. If he denied the pregnancy, he would at best be tarnished as a sexual deviant. At worst, he could face 30 years in prison for statutory rape or be deported as an illegal alien. He sent his valet, Tom Harrington, to arrange a secret ceremony. At a drab registry office, Chaplin wrote about seeing his soon-to-be wife, quote, I felt a little sorry for her. The ceremony was over. As we were about to leave, the officiant said, Don't forget to kiss your bride, Charlie. Oh yes, of course, I smiled. My emotions were mixed. I felt I had been caught in the mesh of a foolish circumstance which had been wanton and unnecessary. A union that had no vital basis. But I had always wanted a wife, and Mildred was young and pretty, not quite nineteen, and though I was ten years older, perhaps it would work out all right. You'll notice that, even decades later, Chaplin couldn't help but change the details of the story, calling her not quite nineteen. Fearing that press coverage of the shotgun wedding would hurt ticket sales, he got the local papers to agree to suppress the story. The next day, when his ex-girlfriend and still-leading actress Edna Purviance learned of the marriage, she gave Chaplin a doleful congratulations. As Lita Gray, Chaplin's second wife, would later recall, quote, He should have married Edna. She was forever loyal to Charlie and endured, at his insistence, two abortions and a ligature tie to prevent further pregnancies. Edna soon developed a serious drinking problem. Chaplin took Mildred on a weeks-long honeymoon, yachting around Catalina Island. He spent most of the time deep-sea fishing. In the midst of these depressing circumstances, there is kind of a funny story here. Supposedly, at one point, he did hook a massive 175-pound sailfish that yanked him off his feet, requiring Mildred to run up and grab him by his ankles, with the fish pulling both of them toward the edge of the boat. They were narrowly saved by the crew from being pulled overboard. She would later confide to her reporter, quote, I don't know whether I've had a honeymoon or not. Back on land, Chaplin moved Mildred and Mildred's mother into a rented house together, and immediately left to begin location scouting for his next film. When he returned, he found out that Mildred was planning to work under the name Mildred Harris Chaplin. A huge fight broke out, during which Mildred revealed that she wasn't pregnant after all. Now, whether it was a miscarriage, a false alarm, or a ploy to get Chaplin to tie the knot, we will never know. But Chaplin was convinced that he had been tricked. We don't know the details of what happened next, but knowing some of his future behavior, we can assume that the worst side of Charlie came out. Threats, insults, and verbal and emotional abuse. 
Mildred broke her current contract and checked into the Good Samaritan Hospital, announcing that she had a nervous breakdown. It was at this point the press broke their silence on the marriage. And so, Charlie did what he always did to avoid the difficulties of his personal life. He threw himself headfirst into his work. But for the first time, that unending wellspring of imagination suddenly went dry. He worked on a film called Sunnyside. It was a bizarre experiment referencing a series of sentimental country melodramas popular at the time. Chaplin also drew inspiration from famous ballet dancer Vaslav Nijinsky, creating surreal dream dance sequences that culminated in a bizarre faux suicide. It took him over six months to make this short, four of which were spent completely idle. He would go fishing, go on drives, searching for a plot, searching for a purpose. Yet, in the midst of this creative drought, Charlie did manage to do something that would shape the world of film for the next 80 years. It started when he approached First Nationals president J.D. Williams about renegotiating his contract to allow him to make feature films. The features were quickly replacing shorts as the main cinematic entertainment and the biggest money makers. But to his amazement, Williams refused to discuss the subject. Sidney began hearing gossip that the major production companies, namely Paramount and First National, were secretly discussing a merger that would allow them to drive down the exorbitant salaries of their major stars. So Chaplin teamed up with Doug Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. They hired a female private investigator to infiltrate a convention of exhibitors, seduce film executives, and get the real info on the merger plan. The investigator confirmed the rumors. The trio began seriously discussing an idea that had first been suggested to them on their Liberty Bond tour by then-Secretary of the Treasury and founder of the Federal Reserve, Bill McAdoo. As they were complaining about the studios hard-capping their salaries, he suggested, why not start your own distribution company? Allow artists to control production without interference from the studios. On January 14, 1919, Doug, Mary, and Charlie agreed to terms of the new corporation. They invited D.W. Griffith and Cowboy star Bill Hart to join as partners and Bill McAdoo to serve as general counsel. They founded United Artists. Hollywood execs sneered at the new venture. One of them said, quote, the lunatics are running the asylum. And in some ways, they were correct. Bill Hart immediately dropped out using the new company as leverage for a new contract. Griffith was a notorious overspender. Chaplin was slow. Doug was a business idiot. Only Mary Pickford, who, despite her title as America's sweetheart, was actually a business genius. It was her financial acumen that had kept her as Hollywood's highest-paid star for a decade. She was the one who kept the new venture afloat. But of course, she was a woman, so she was easily dismissed out of hand. Despite the turbulent start, United Artists would survive. It would become the only Hollywood studio to champion independent filmmakers throughout the 20s, 30s, and 40s. It was the lone opposition to what became known as the studio system that dominated Hollywood throughout the 1950s. Now, remember in the last episode when I told you about Adolf Zucker's hostile takeover of Paramount and how he bought up all these theaters to distribute Paramount's films? Well, this model was replicated, and soon eight major studios controlled all of Hollywood's output. These were Lowe's the parent company to MGM, Paramount, Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, RKO, Universal, Columbia, and United Artists. Now you might be wondering, who cares? 
I love the golden age of Hollywood. What's so wrong with the studio system? Well, I'll tell you. By holding a monopolistic grip on every stage of production, studio executives were able to control and censor and destroy the lives and careers of every person involved with the filmmaking process. The electricians, the costumers, the superstars, everyone was locked into long-term contracts that forced them to make whatever the studios told them to. Artistic expression, experimentation, risk-taking was completely flattened by studio execs obsessed with securing profits. They implemented a practice known as block booking, another invention of Adolf Zucker, where studios would bundle films together and force independent theater chains to buy the whole lot. This is where we get the term B-movie, because theaters were forced to screen a bunch of B-movies for every A-list hit. Now, while this practice guaranteed pre-market sales for all the studio's films, they flooded American theaters with bad movies, making it impossible for independent producers to get their movies onto screens. Life magazine wrote in a 1957 retrospective on the now-dead studio system, quote, It wasn't good entertainment, and it wasn't art. And most of the movies produced had a uniform mediocrity, but they were also uniformly profitable. The million-dollar mediocrity was the very backbone of Hollywood. Thank God that's over with and is definitely in no way, shape, or form repeating itself today. (laughs) Now, United Artists was different than the other studios. They operated more like a backer for independent filmmakers, with executives exercising minimal creative control. They helped fund and produce films from Buster Keaton, Walt Disney, Norma Talmadge, Samuel Goldwyn, Howard Hughes, David O. Selznick, Orson Welles, and Hal Roach. In the early 1940s, United Artists' sister organization, the Society of Independent Motion Picture Producers, filed an antitrust suit against Paramount. This case led to the 1948 Supreme Court decision that forced the studios to divest from their theater chains and end anti-competitive practices. This ruling effectively ended the studio system. Chaplin was actively involved with United Artists throughout the mid-1950s. But after he and Mary Pickford sold their 50% controlling shares, the company went on to have a legendary run in the post-studio world of the 60s and 70s. Some of the titles they released or produced included West Side Story, Hard Day's Night, Dr. No, Pink Panther, Sergio Leone's Dollars Trilogy, In the Heat of the Night, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Rocky, Annie Hall, and Midnight Cowboy, just to name a few. In the 1980s, United Artists was acquired by MGM and has since been bought, sold, and repackaged more times than I can count. It was briefly resurrected in the mid-2000s by Tom Cruise before being reacquired by MGM. Its name now has been rebranded as United Artists Releasing as a joint distribution venture between MGM and Annapurna Studios. Back at its inception, United Artists was an expression of the raging battle between management and labor that was taking place across the globe. This was a world in which the Soviet Union had just become the first communist nation on earth, promoting the ideas of Marx and Engels to the front page of newspapers everywhere. Chaplin was intrinsically drawn to this political discourse like a moth to a flame, partially because of his impoverished childhood, but mostly because he wanted to be liked and accepted by the intellectual elite that promoted these far-left ideas. In March, Chaplin accepted an invitation to attend a speech by writer, philosopher, and socialist thinker Max Eastman. Eastman epitomized the Greenwich Village intellectual set that Chaplin was so desperate to be a part of. He was tall, handsome, charismatic, and a little dangerous. 
Eastman's speech that day was titled, Hands Off Russia, even though he had never been to the newly founded Soviet utopia. Now, most Americans were against the new Soviet Union. Not only were they afraid of communism inherently, but they certainly didn't appreciate it when the Bolsheviks dropped out of the war in 1917, allowing Germans to focus their efforts all on the Western Front. Throughout this speaking tour, Eastman had been banned, chased off stage, and threatened at gunpoint. But in the wild world of early Hollywood, he found a more sympathetic crowd. After the speech, Chaplin asked to meet Eastman backstage, telling him, quote, You have what I consider the essence of all art. They continued their conversation over dinner, and with no regard for Eastman's association with a bunch of hard-edged communists who were explicitly dedicated to the violent overthrow of the American state, Chaplin was infatuated. Chaplin had always felt a certain shame that he had benefited from capitalism more than almost any person in history. He both protected and resented the fact that he was the living embodiment of the rags-to-riches self-made man that the American capitalist dream is built on. Author Kenneth S. Lynn writes, quote, His breathtakingly rapid accumulation of wealth, his increasingly expensive tastes, his fondness for the company of other movie-land millionaires, his satisfaction at becoming the master of a movie studio of his own, and his need as an artist for untrammeled freedom of expression should have made his stake in the survival of capitalist democracy so clear to him as to render him immune to collectivist dreams. Chaplin, however, craved the acquaintance of intellectuals, in part because he enjoyed their company, and in part because their acceptance of him as an equal enhanced his self-esteem. Of course, in many ways, his intellectual elitism was just another act. Rolly Tothero remembered, He can talk pretty near any subject, but if a person really was educated on the subject he was talking on, they'd see the errors he made. His longtime chauffeur, Taraichi Kono, added, quote, he could talk volubly on a subject about which he knows practically nothing and leave his listeners convinced that he is amazingly intellectual. But while some were convinced by Charlie's act, Eastman wasn't. He said, quote, Nobody knew Charlie well. I sensed very early through watching with keen attention these wholly unintegrated flights of his mind that he could not be relied upon to be or to continue to be anything in particular, and I never expected him to be. Despite these concerns, Chaplin and Eastman got along really well. They had a lot in common. They were both commonly mistaken for being Jewish. They both had difficult and domineering mothers. They were both obsessed with celebrities and celebrity culture. And they both saw themselves as rebel bad boys who couldn't be tied down. And they used that reputation to get women. I basically think of them as a 1920s version of Drake and Future, if those two rappers wanted everyone to think of them as college professors. Having divorced his first wife, Eastman had fully embraced the intellectual pursuit of self-knowledge through free love. Of his many affairs, he had mostly been seeing the brilliant and popular actress named Florence Deshawn. Deshawn was the daughter of a Welsh trade union organizer. She was known for her good looks, but she was also a poet, a scholar, and a political radical. She had gained popularity by appearing in several New York-based films. In a way, she was kind of like the indie film darling of 1917. Now, back in that year, she was just beginning to cross over into mainstream popularity, receiving offers from Hollywood, even being offered a lucrative ad deal to become the face of Coca-Cola when, stop me if this sounds familiar, she refused to stand during the national anthem during one of her film premieres. I don't know why they were playing the national anthem at a movie theater, but... That's the story. 
This gesture, combined with her association with Max Eastman, made her big offers evaporate. In an effort to help her, Eastman invited Deshaun to Los Angeles to restart her film career. As Chaplin was finally putting the finishing touches on Sunnyside, he ran into Hollywood newcomer Louis B. Mayer, the producer and future co-founder of MGM. Now, Mayer signed Mildred to a new contract. He offered her a six-picture deal where she would be co-producer and the films would be released through First National as Chaplin Mayer Productions. For Chaplin, this all but confirmed that his child bride was cashing in on his name, and even worse, it was bringing her closer to his backstabbing bosses at First National. But by now, Mildred was truly pregnant. Depressed over the state of her failing marriage, she turned to a quasi-religious sect that preached the gospel of positivity, encouraging devotees to banish all negative thoughts and approach life with a smile. For Charlie, this all but confirmed she was a complete idiot. He finished Sunnyside in June 1919, and the film was a massive flop. Panned by critics and audiences alike, it was beaten at the box office by both Fatty Arbuckle's A Desert Hero and Backstage, both featuring an up-and-coming Buster Keaton in a supporting role, and by up-and-comer Harold Lloyd, who had managed to churn out 30 shorts that same year. As a side note, Sunnyside would be rediscovered, and it was a huge inspiration to a group of French intellectuals that loved the dark, zany, nonsensical comedy of it. You might have heard of them. Truffaut, Godard, René. They went on to create the French New Wave. But back in 1919, the majority of cinema-goers began to openly question if Chaplin had lost his touch. Looking for a scapegoat, Chaplin blamed Mildred. He couldn't play husband to someone he didn't love and be the obsessive artist he had always been. But with animosity growing, Mildred gave birth to a boy, Norman Spencer Chaplin, on July 7th. The infant was born with terrible birth defects and died three days later. He was buried in Inglewood Cemetery beneath a gravestone that read, The Little Mouse. Mildred would later recall that the kindest moments of their marriage was when Charlie came to her in the hospital and they held each other and cried. The funeral director Mildred chose was a member of her church. Chaplin was horrified to discover that the man had manipulated a grotesque prop smile on the dead infant's face. Chaplin once again withdrew into his imagination, and within ten days of the death of his son, he was auditioning babies for the opening scene of his next film, The Kid. A few months earlier, Chaplin had gone to the Orpheum Theater and seen an eccentric dancer by the name of Jack Coogan. In his grand finale, Jack brought out his four-year-old son, who joined his dancing father, to cheers from the audience. Chaplin no doubt saw himself in the young Jackie Coogan and arranged a meeting. Chaplin and Jackie played together on the famed million-dollar carpet of the Alexandria Hotel, so named because of the million-dollar movie deals that were made on it. Chaplin said, quote, this is the most amazing person I have ever met in my life. When he asked his father, Jack, if he could sign young Jackie to a contract, 
Jack replied, Of course you can have the little punk. For months, Chaplin worked on channeling his grief into a story in which the tramp adopts an orphan and becomes a loving father. He worked in a flurry of enthusiasm. The story was simple. Edna plays a fallen, unwed mother, no doubt inspired by his own mother, Hannah, who abandons her baby in the back of an opulent car. They actually borrowed D.W. Griffith's car for the scene. The car is then stolen by two crooks, but when they find the baby, they dump it in an alley where it is found by the tramp. We fast forward a few years to see the tramp now living in a cramped attic apartment, no doubt inspired by Chaplin's childhood home, where he has become the de facto guardian of the young boy. Jackie Coogan proved to be a natural actor and gifted mimic. Scenes were shot quickly without the copious retakes on many of Chaplin's previous shoots. Riffing on a famous Shakespeare quote, Chaplin would describe Jackie, quote, He could apply emotion to the action and action to the emotion. Coogan's parents watched with amazement as Jackie and Charlie developed a very real friendship. Between camera setups, Charlie and Jackie would go play in the orange grove that was still standing in the corner of the studio lot, or look at ants in the grass. Chaplin had always played up his childlike qualities, but with Jackie, he also embodied an adoptive father. In many ways, Jackie filled the hole that his recently deceased child had left. And Chaplin had a masterful touch in giving Coogan and his fellow child actor, the nine-year-old Raymond Lee, directions like adults. And at times, even trusting them to direct themselves. Lee later recalled, quote, Chaplin, the director, had no favorites. What amazed me was how he judged himself. A wall of mirrors in front of him couldn't be more critical. First, National made it clear that they didn't want a feature film. But Chaplin kept shooting. And when they refused to cover the production cost, he borrowed half a million dollars from the Bank of Italy to fund the picture. All of a sudden, the studio's financial viability was riding on the success of the kid. Now, to get First National off his back, Chaplin spent most of November cranking out a two-reeler called A Day's Pleasure. It was a trite throwback to his early days at SNA and was met with further criticism, such as this article in Photoplay titled Letter to a Genius, that read, quote, Sunny side was anything but sunny. A day's pleasure was certainly not a pleasure. Since you have been out of sorts, the world has gone lame and happiness has moved away. Come back, Charlie. While production was going on, Chaplin was growing closer to Max Eastman's lover, Florence Deshawn. She had arrived in L.A. with no agent, no offers, and a two-year hiatus from film work. Almost immediately, she was given a contract by Samuel Goldwyn, whose pictures were being distributed through United Artists at the time, along with a generous $1,000 wardrobe allowance. This was a time when actors and actresses were expected to provide their own wardrobe. Most likely, all this good fortune came directly from Chaplin himself, who always enjoyed the power and satisfaction of being an anonymous beneficiary to his friends. Deshaun was a person who was always caught between two worlds. Her beauty made her an actress, but her intellectual pursuits guaranteed she was a lonely one. She wrote to Max back in New York, quote, Darling, I understand why all these movie people are so restless and discontented. There is absolutely no purpose or beauty in their lives. All this talk about a new art being born is untrue. It's simply a new business. This was a time when the entire industry was seized by labor strikes and threats from studios about any sort of collective action, which offended Florence's socialist beliefs. 
the long multi-page love letters from Max Eastman filled with erotic pinings that she received almost every few days only exacerbated her chronic sense of displacement. If she were alive today, Florence Deshawn would most likely be diagnosed with depression. Eastman came to visit in September and finally brought Florence and Charlie together. Along with another woman named Margaret, they became an inseparable foursome, spending every night at Chaplin's house playing elaborate and hyper-competitive improv games designed to challenge and test one's intellectual rigor. While the group partied in the living room, the unwelcome Mildred Harris stayed upstairs, justifying her hurt feelings with a refusal to associate with Charlie's, quote, socialist friends. Just before the premiere of A Day's Pleasure, Max returned to New York, asking Charlie to look after Florence for him. He would later recognize that subconsciously, he was setting up a situation for Charlie and Florence to get together as an excuse for his own philandering. In many ways, Florence embodied all the things that Chaplin thought he wanted in a woman. Back in 1916, he had said in an interview that he was looking for, quote, an intellectual woman. Most men prefer to look down on women, but I haven't got the brains to feel that way. We certainly know that he didn't think Mildred was his intellectual equal. And furthermore, Florence's melancholy inspired a codependent desire to be a caregiver, much like he had done with his own emotionally volatile mother as a child. Now, this was a dangerous time for political radicals. In response to all that labor unrest, the Department of Justice had launched what became known as the Palmer Raids, targeting Italian anarchists and Jewish immigrants with alleged leftist ties and deporting them back to Europe. As the first Red Scare gripped the nation, Chaplin and Florence found solace in each other. As they began having an affair, he moved her into a better apartment close to his studio. Work on the kid was becoming slower and more sporadic. Chaplin's shooting style had long been considered eccentric, but now colleagues and employees were beginning to express their concern for his unpredictable moods. Chaplin halted production over Christmas so Jackie could visit his relatives in San Francisco. Chaplin spent the holiday with Florence, telling her he loved her and wanted to marry her. But of course, he couldn't marry her until he divorced Mildred. And if he divorced Mildred, the profits from the kid would most likely go into the settlement, and he couldn't repay the massive loan he took out from the Bank of Italy. Staring down this pile of self-imposed obstacles, Chaplin fell into a state of stasis. He shot scenes over and over and over again for no reason. He took days off because he, quote, didn't feel funny. He strung poor Florence along and generally wasted everyone's time just so he could avoid dealing with his wife and his bosses. Florence wrote after seeing the kid, quote, The picture was wonderful. It's going to be very special, if indeed it was ever finished. Charlie is very bad about his work and takes scenes over and over again, not because he's striving for perfection, but because something in him can't go forward. I have become tired of Charlie's marital troubles. He stays in that frightful situation at his home, and his powerlessness to move wears me out. Mildred, meanwhile, was not yet resigned to ending the marriage. Over that same Christmas holiday, she had read a story of a woman who had been abandoned by her husband after going into labor. She visited the woman and offered to adopt the baby. Chaplin refused to sign the adoption papers. But a few weeks later, Mildred found another single woman who had given birth to triplets. This time, she went to the press with her desire to adopt and forced Charlie to admit to reporters that he was the one standing in her way. The resentment between the two of them got worse. Chaplin and his lawyers tried to void her agreement with Louis B. Mayer on the grounds that she was a minor and needed his consent. 
Whether he knew it or not, Chaplin was trying to make Mildred as miserable as possible. She was unable to work. She was unable to adopt. She was unable to see other men. He was trying to force her to file a divorce so that he could then appear to be the injured party. By early spring, Chaplin had moved out of his house with Mildred and went back to living at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. The press found out and badgered Mildred for an explanation. On March 15th, production was once again shut down as Mildred finally filed a suit for divorce. At first, she accused her husband of desertion and claimed to the press that she wanted neither a divorce nor money. Two days later, on March 22nd, she changed the charges to cruelty. In response, Chaplin had his friends in the press spread rumors that Mildred was having a lesbian affair with First Lady of the Cinema Lillian Gish. The story of Chaplin's divorce was only bumped from the headlines when Charlie's best friends, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, were secretly married after divorcing their respective spouses. The press went crazy over the news, declaring it the marriage of the century. In the midst of all this chaos and drama, Chaplin ran into Louis B. Mayer in the dining room of the Alexandria Hotel. He confronted the producer over his contract with Mildred. Things escalated, and Chaplin punched Mayer in the face. Mayer, who had spent his youth in the scrap metal business, hit back. And thankfully for Charlie, the staff intervened before anyone could get seriously hurt. All the while, Mildred was partying in San Diego, dancing with the Prince of Wales, future King Edward VIII, who would be remembered for abdicating the throne so he could marry American divorcee Wallace Simpson. A lot of big divorce energy in Southern California right now. Chaplin wrote, quote, Although I had grown fond of Mildred, we were irreconcilably mismatched. Her character was not mean, but exasperatingly feline. I could never reach her mind. It was cluttered with pink-ribbon foolishness. She was as much occupied at her studio as I was at mine. It became a sad house. I would come home to find the dinner table laid for one and would eat alone. She was away for a week without leaving a word. Amidst the divorce proceedings of 1920, Mildred Harris gave an interview detailing their marriage. And this is quite a long quote, but I think it's important to let her tell her own side of the story. I'm quite ready to admit that my marriage to Charlie Chaplin was a mistake. It was a mistake on his part because he is a genius, and geniuses should not marry. He would be better free and remain free, for he will make any woman he marries miserable, I know. Although I was married, the youth had not gone out of me with my acceptance of the wedding ring. I liked to dance and to be with people. Mr. Chaplin didn't. He would never dance except to keep me from dancing with other men. He didn't like people, at least not people who love to laugh and sing and dance because they are glad they are alive. He brought men home to dinner, such men, old, grave, and intellectual. I was seventeen. What could I know of philosophy or Voltaire or Rousseau or Kant? He likes to think he is a socialist, though he didn't live like one. He wasn't willing to divide his money with anyone, not even his wife, as was invariably impressed upon me on Bill Day. Instead of staying at home with me, in our big lonely house on the hill, he left me cowering with fear as a child cowers in the dark, while he went forth to walk the streets at night. He walked until four or five in the morning. He was looking for types. He was seeking characters and materials for his comedies. I was not in his world of thought. One thing that bored me was that he wanted to read deep books, yet sometimes I found that Charlie fooled me. When I really read the books, I read them, I delved into them, and when I would talk to him about the plots and characters, I found he had only a surface knowledge of them. 
It's true, Chaplin rarely finished the books he was constantly name-dropping. His life had not been as sheltered as mine was. In those days, while he was growing up in Europe, he had not known the best women. He was surprised when I did not drink or smoke cigarettes. He could not believe that the men whom I had known before I knew him were not my suitors, and it was impossible for him to believe that the men with whom I signed contracts or worked in the studios I regarded merely as cogs in the business wheel or professional associates. After our marriage, he would say to me while we were in restaurants or driving, keep your head down, I don't want any man to see your face, or don't look at that man, he will think you want him. He lived abroad too long to understand our open-eyed American candor. As the divorce turned bitter, Chaplin strained to finish the kid. The last sequence was shot in May, and it was the most elaborate and strangest of Chaplin's many dream sequences. In the dream, the tramp falls asleep in an alley, only to wake up in paradise. All the characters of the film become genial winged angels, and he is reunited with his adopted son. But then sin creeps in. The devil tempts the tramp with a young, pretty girl, played by a 12-year-old Lolita McMurray, which arouses the jealousy of her boyfriend. The boyfriend takes out a gun and shoots the tramp, leaving the kid to cry over his bleeding, lifeless body. The film was now finished as a seven-reel feature, but First National only offered to pay him for a two-reeler. When Chaplin refused, the company made a deal with Mildred, funding her legal defense in the hopes that they could gain control of the negative of the kid via the divorce proceedings. They convinced her to refuse multiple settlement agreements in the hopes of seizing more Chaplin assets. In August, cinematographer Rolly Tothrow was awakened by studio manager Alf Reeves at three in the morning. They went to the studio and divided the 400,000 feet of highly flammable film negative into 100-foot rolls, which they then put into coffee cans. They put the coffee cans into crates and ran away to Salt Lake City, Utah. They were soon joined by a disguised chaplain. There, they turned a hotel bedroom into an improvised cutting room and completed the edit of The Kid. Florence joined Chaplin in Utah, but she was extremely ill. She wasn't even able to attend the secret screening of The Rough Cut, in which audiences raved over the new film. Too distracted by his success to care about Florence, Chaplin ignored her deteriorating health. They took a train east, and while Chaplin stopped in Chicago to clean up some unfinished business with his old nemesis George Spohr, who had been trying to sue Chaplin for years, Florence continued on to New York. When Max Eastman met her at the train station, he was shocked to see the state she was in. He took her to a doctor where it was discovered that she was carrying a three-month-old fetus that had died in the womb. The gynecologist who treated her told Max that her condition most likely was the result of an unsuccessful abortion. The father was almost certainly Charlie. After the surgery, Max brought Florence to his house and nursed her back to health. Soon, their affair resumed. When Chaplin got to New York, he saw Florence and was contrite and apologetic. By this point, Max and Chaplin were aware that they were both sleeping with the same woman. And with a self-congratulating chivalry, they agreed it was best to let Florence make up her own mind between them. Max wrote, quote, We both had a sense of humor and of the varieties of human experience, and we both admired her extravagantly. Florence was the only girl he had ever loved with total respect and admiration. Florence began commuting between her two lovers. In reality, Max was too in love with the notion of liberty to commit to any one person, and secretly hoped she would choose Charlie, 
Chaplin, meanwhile, hid behind a screen of aw shucks childishness. As author Joyce Milton wrote, quote, Instead of trying to compete with Max, he summed up the situation by telling Florence that he was satisfied to have sneaked in where a better man belonged. But while he was unwilling to assert himself with Florence, Chaplin was now playing a high-stakes game of chicken with First National. Emboldened by the Salt Lake City test screening, he demanded that they pay an advance of $1.5 million for the kid. At first they said no, but after seeing the film, they knew they had a major hit on their hands. First National abandoned Mildred. She had to settle the divorce on grounds of mental cruelty for $100,000 and a small share of the property, with no rights over the kid. Without First National support, most of that money had to pay her attorney's fees. She traded her religious positivity for alcohol and within a year was bankrupt. She eventually remarried and had a son and kept acting in supporting roles such as the Clark Gable, Barbara Stanwyck classic Night Nurse. But the stardom that seemed promised never materialized. Her career ended with several appearances in Three Stooges shorts before dying of alcohol-related pneumonia at the age of 43. With the divorce finalized, Chaplin assured Florence that he was devoted to her. But something in her was unsatisfied. She knew that Max and Charlie were playing games with her, and so she returned to Los Angeles alone, spurning them both. Chaplin was devastated. Eastman would later say that, quote, Florence meant more to Chaplin than any woman except his later wife, Una O'Neill. Having outmaneuvered both Mildred and First National, finally, on February 6, 1921, the world got to see the incredible work of art that is The Kid. I just rewatched The Kid for this episode, and yeah, it's a masterpiece. Funny, tender, action packed, massive in scope, yet so intimate in its delivery. Although a bit Victorian in its sentimentality, its allure is undeniable. I think it surpasses every silent film made before it. Almost instantly, it was considered one of the greatest films ever made. The Kid immediately put Chaplin into the ranks of serious filmmakers. It was filled with contradictions just like its creator. It was a comedic tearjerker. It appealed to commoners and intellectuals alike. When poet Hart Crane saw the film, he was so moved that he wrote the poem Chaplinesque. Crane, like many gay men of the era, related not just to the fact that the tramp was a marginalized hero, but that he embodied a kind of androgynous anti-masculinity. They had noticed Chaplin's nod to homosexuality in his early short payday, and Chaplin had become somewhat of an underground gay icon. Now, this attention has led some biographers to speculate that Chaplin may have himself been bisexual. However, there is no evidence of this. And given that Chaplin was under surveillance from the FBI for almost 30 years, I find it highly unlikely that this would have escaped their notice. What's interesting about all this is that even in the midst of his personal moral failings, Chaplin's character would consistently come to offer hope and identity to the lonely, alienated, and marginalized inspiring generations of people and artists to come. Over the next three years, the kid was distributed to over 50 countries. Jackie Coogan became an international star. To this day, his performance ranks as the greatest by any child actor in history, except for maybe Henry Thomas in E.T. 
Jackie would go on to raise millions of dollars in charity for poor children across the globe. And while he never worked with Chaplin again, he went on to star in films for a few years, but like so many people struggled to transition from silent films to sound. His father, Jack, ended up devoting himself to the management of Jackie's business affairs, protecting the over $4 million Jackie earned in a trust. But in 1934, tragically only five months before Jackie's 21st birthday, his father was killed in an automobile accident. His estate was left to his mother, who asserted that it was the legal right of the parents to keep all the money earned by their children. In 1938, Jackie brought suit against his mother and his former business manager whom she had married. The lawsuit ate away his fortune, but in 1939 a settlement was reached and the Child Actors Bill, also known as the Coogan Act, ensured that all future child artists had half of their earnings set aside in trust for the child's benefit. Jackie ended up having a career resurgence and in his later years was known as playing Uncle Fester on TV's The Addams Family. After the success of The Kid, Chaplin agreed to move his mother out of her London mental hospital and to a house in California. It's almost as if through The Kid, Chaplin had managed to find some sense of healing for his wounded inner child to the point where he could face his mother again. He sent Tom Harrington to pick her up. The trip went well, except for a brief moment in New York when she mistook the immigration officer handling her case to be Jesus Christ. She was settled into a beachside home, given constant care. However, Charlie seldom visited her. Although she was lucid most of the time, she was prone to relapses into insanity. As Alf Reeves' daughter would recall, quote, Sometimes she was brilliant. She would do old songs and sketches. She was like Charlie. She would do wonderful imitations. She could do whole plays from beginning to end. And then all of a sudden, she wouldn't be right. One day, I was sitting beside her at lunch, and I noticed a mark on her arm. Innocently, I said, Nan, what's that? And immediately she drew her arm away and hid it, and then started putting bits of bread all about herself and on her head. The nurse, Mrs. Carey, said, Come with me, Nan, and took her off into another room. When Mrs. Carey came back, she said that the mark was a tattoo from the workhouse. She said it brought back the days when they had not enough to eat, and she was putting the bread away for Sidney and Charlie. To make the reunion complete, Chaplin's long-lost half-brother, Wheeler Dryden, popped up. He had written several letters to Charlie and Edna, all of which went unanswered, but upon his arrival in California, Sidney gave him a job. Upon seeing his mother for the first time, the often overly dramatic Wheeler said, Do you know who I am? Hannah replied, Of course I do. You're my son. Sit down and have a cup of tea. Still owing four shorts to First National, Chaplin decided to once again use his personal problems for story content. In The Idle Class, he plays both the tramp and a rich, neglectful husband who ignores his wife, played by Edna. He completed the film in five months. After Florence's rejection, Chaplin began an affair with an aspiring actress who had been hired as a secretary. May Collins was a joyful, bright-eyed, girl-next-door type who balanced sophistication with down-to-earth style. She accompanied Charlie back to L.A., and soon the studio confirmed a report that the couple was engaged. But by early June, Charlie had a change of heart. He suddenly decided that he could barely stand being in the same room as May. Of course, he was too much of a coward to just break up with her, so instead he avoided her, which of course was incredibly difficult considering that she was working as his secretary. Charlie stopped coming into work, claiming he had a bad case of the flu, and instead began seeing Florence again. Florence's return to L.A. had been a disappointment. 
Without Chaplin's behind-the-scenes help, her film career had faltered, a fact that she deeply resented. She was doing regional theater to pay the bills when Charlie once again tried to play caretaker. Venting her frustration, she wrote an editorial article about the film industry for Vanity Fair titled, quote, The Dictatorship of Mediocrity. Hearing rumors that Chaplin's relationship with May Collins was on the rocks, the tabloids reported on his every encounter with the opposite sex, speculating his involvement with other popular leading ladies of the day, Lila Lee and Anna Q. Nilsson. This media frenzy caught the attention of one of the most powerful people in Hollywood, female director and producer Lois Weber. Lois Weber is an absolute legend. Even in the early days of silent film, she was seen as an equal to D.W. Griffith. She produced, directed, wrote, and starred in anywhere between 200 and 400 shorts, many of which focused on social justice. Sadly, only about 20 survived. She invented the split screen. She was one of the first people to experiment with synchronized sound. She was the first woman to direct a feature-length film and the first American woman to own her own film studio. On top of all this, she discovered and promoted many prominent actresses throughout the late teens and early 20s. And in 1921, she had just signed actress Claire Windsor to a contract. What she needed was a way to get her young starlet's name into the press. She put Claire into the path of the easiest bachelor in Hollywood, Charlie Chaplin. Just like the swordfish he was so fond of catching off Catalina Island, Chaplin took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. Soon he and Claire were spending time together, and he was inviting her to the studio. But suddenly, Claire disappeared while horseback riding near Griffith Park. A search was launched, but neither bloodhounds, a group of 100 Boy Scouts, nor the police department's Native American scouting unit could find the missing starlet. Newspapers across the country reported on the hourly updates. Chaplin, who had been seen with Windsor earlier in the day, was obligated to join the search out of fear of bad press. He mounted one of Doug Fairbanks's horses and joined the 400-odd volunteers scouring the Hollywood Hills for Claire, offering a $1,000 reward for anyone that found her. At 8 p.m. the next day, Claire Windsor was found by a young couple. She was black and blue, swollen almost beyond the point of recognition by blows and exhaustion. She was rushed to the hospital and interviewed by the police. But when the young couple showed up at the chaplain studio and demanded the reward, press secretary Carlisle Robinson delayed the payment. Instead, he went to the hospital and interviewed Claire Windsor. That's when he found her riding boots immaculate and polished. He noticed the dark circles under her eyes and blood on her nose were nothing but a convincing makeup job. After a brief interrogation, Claire admitted that the whole disappearance was a publicity stunt. Chaplin did not pay the $1,000 reward, and he never talked to Claire Windsor again. If anything, this just confirmed what he already believed about Mildred Harris and women in general. He could not trust them. They were all out to get him. The truth of the story would be hidden for another 54 years. But the ruse worked. Claire Windsor became an A-list star. Only at the end of her life did she admit that Lois Weber had devised the entire plan, found the cabin where she stayed, and manipulated Chaplin into putting a dollar amount on her name. Now, I know that this is very bad behavior, but I hope everyone is taking note of just how many powerful women there are in the early days of Hollywood. Lois Weber, Mabel Normand, 
Mary Pickford. And then there was others that don't even pop up in this story. I mean, Dorothy Davenport, Dorothy Arzner, Alice Gee. The loss of all these artists was yet another horrible byproduct of the studio system. I mean, that's what happens when you have seven men in charge of all the decision-making in an industry. It was also the conservative pressure from censors and just general misogynists that pushed women out of industry positions of power. But in the teens and 20s, it wasn't like that. I'm not saying it was perfect. But when given an opportunity, enterprising women were a driving force in early years of film. It's a legacy that we should celebrate and recognize so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. The disappearance of Claire Windsor confirmed what May Collins already feared. Chaplin had moved on. Just looking for a friend, she began visiting Florence Deshawn, seeking a sympathetic ear. But Florence didn't want to hear it. She still had feelings for Chaplin, but was disgusted by his immature behavior. Overwhelmed by his unfulfilling work life, the pressure to see his mom, and his chaotic love life, Charlie finally decided that he needed to do something to fix the situation. He needed a vacation. He decided that it was time to return to his homeland and celebrate the London premiere of The Kid, claiming, quote, I wanted to grab it while it was good. Perhaps The Kid might be my last picture. Maybe there would never be another chance for me to bask in the spotlight. He traveled to New York, joining Doug and Mary at the raucous premiere of The Three Musketeers. Chaplin was engulfed in a crowd, had his tie and hat stolen, and a piece of his pants cut off by a souvenir hunter. He also met with Max Eastman, who invited him for dinner filled with members of the IWW. With the Red Scare seemingly over, Chaplin thought it would be okay to open up about his socialist leanings. In an interview with the magazine Shadowland, he said, quote, Wealth has allowed me to think. I used to be afraid to have ideas. I admire Lenin because he trimmed his sails and modifies his ideas to meet the changes of each day. His political calculation was a bad one. These comments would go on to haunt him, and for the rest of his trip, people would be asking if he was a Bolshevik. On September 3rd, Chaplin boarded a ship and sailed across the Atlantic. For the first time as an adult, Chaplin was idle. Uncomfortable with the thought of not performing, Chaplin relapsed into insecurity. He hid in his cabin for much of the voyage, commenting, quote, I just do not know how to meet people. While Charlie was moping below deck, a tragic event was taking place across the country that would shake Hollywood to its core. While celebrating Labor Day weekend in San Francisco, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, who at this point was making even more money than Chaplin, held a drunken party in a hotel. But when fellow partier Virginia Rappé suddenly died in the night, Arbuckle was accused with her rape and murder. Now, it would take three trials before Arbuckle was finally exonerated, but his career was essentially over. Despite the lurid accounts that filled newspapers for months, Virginia Rappé most likely died from internal bleeding related to a black market abortion. Now, I just want to stop here because we need to recognize just how many characters in this story have their lives irrevocably changed because of the inaccessibility to abortion. Abortions have been happening since the beginning of time. The first recorded mention of an abortion was in 1550 B.C., this time period illustrates an ancient lesson of history, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or the depiction of sex on screen, prohibitions don't work. They don't stop the behavior, they just push it underground, making life harder and more dangerous for everybody. 
Now, this story honestly deserves its own episode, and I think I'm going to try to put that out at some point in the future. But for our purposes, just know that this was the first major scandal of Hollywood, and it created a worldwide media sensation. Newspapers and conservative moralists jumped on the story, painting young Hollywood as a hellscape of drunken, immoral debauchery. And this is where the clarity of history really exposes how absurd we are as a species, okay? To assuage the outcry from conservative crusaders over a crime that didn't even happen, studio execs turned to an actual criminal to clean things up. They hired the crooked former chairman of the Republican National Committee, Will H. Hayes, who had been a major player in the biggest federal bribery scandal of the century, the Teapot Dome scandal. But of course, what mattered is that Hayes didn't look like a criminal. He was a Presbyterian, elk, moose, Rotarian, mason, and all-around stick-up-his-ass Midwesterner who would go on to develop and institute a code of censorship that would stifle freedom of expression in American films until the late 1960s in what became known as the Hayes Code. The free and wild days of early Hollywood were numbered. A hundred years before the term cancel culture was invented, artists were about to have their careers destroyed by rumors and the mere proximity to scandal. But that was all far in the future. Charlie was brimming with anticipation to step foot in England for the first time in eight years. His goals were threefold. First of all, he wanted to revisit the streets of his youth. Next, he wanted to cash in on his celebrity and rub elbows with all the famous people he could find. Finally, he had a secret desire to reconnect with Hetty Kelly. He thought the letter he had received from her years earlier might give him some hope of a renewed romance. When his ship arrived in Cherbourg, the deck was invaded by reporters. Chaplin said, quote, This is my first holiday in four years. There's only one place to spend a holiday long overdue, and that is home. That is why I intend to go to London. I want to walk the streets, see all the many changes, and feel the good old London atmosphere again. After England, I mean to go to Paris and then Russia. Why Russia, you say? Because I am immensely interested in that great country and its efforts towards social reconstruction after chaos. I mean to enjoy myself thoroughly and to go to all the old corners that I knew when I was a boy. I want to be a Londoner among Londoners, not some sort of comic hero to be stared at. When asked if he was a Bolshevik, Chaplin replied, I am an artist, not a politician. He took a ship to Southampton where he was met by a small traveling party that included Arthur Kelly. Hetty's brother. Quote, he looked at me strangely and seemed embarrassed. He said, Hetty died, you know. I was shocked, but at that moment I could not assimilate the full tragedy of it. It turns out that the illness Hetty mentioned in her 1918 letter was the Spanish flu. She had died possibly before ever receiving Chaplin's response, another victim to the flu epidemic that swept the globe in the wake of World War I. As they rode the train into London, the streets became swarmed with the biggest crowds Chaplin had ever seen. Author David Robinson wrote, quote, The scenes that awaited him in London were astonishing. His homecoming was a triumph hardly paralleled in the 20th century apart from a few great royal or national events. From Waterloo to the Ritz, the streets were thronged with people all waiting for a glimpse of their idol and a chance to cheer. When he reached his hotel, the recently built Ritz-Carlton, he threw a bouquet of roses into the crowd, causing a minor scramble. The London police asked him to never do that again. Chaplin managed to sneak out the side door and was able to return to South London. 
He saw the streets of his youth. Some things still remained. The old blind beggar under the arches of Canterbury Music Hall, Christ Church where his mother prayed. On Chester Street, he went to the barber shop where he'd briefly been a lather boy. He even went to a photography shop that had photographed him when he was with Casey's Circus and asked if they still had the prints. They laughed that the negatives had all been destroyed years ago. As the night drew to a close, Chaplin took his friends to Three Pound Hall Terrace, the top-floor garret that had been one of his many childhood homes. The place was now occupied by an aging war widow named Mrs. Reynolds, who recalled hearing a knock at the door at 10.30 p.m. Quote, I shouted, Who's there? It's Charlie Chaplin, I heard a voice say. Never dreaming it was really Mr. Chaplin, I shouted from the bed, Oh, don't you try and play any jokes on me. Charlie won't come at this hour. But the knocking went on. So I got out of bed. I had to take a picture away before I could open the door as it has no key and I had to wedge it up. I saw four gentlemen on the stairs and one of them, slightly built and wearing a gray lounge suit, said in a gentle voice, I really am Charlie Chaplin. Were you asleep? I said, no. He looked around the room. I was glad that the sheets on the bed were clean and he said, this is my old room. I have bumped my head many times on that ceiling, pointing to the spot above the bed, and got thrashed for it. After leaving, he was taken to a swanky dinner party, where an uncouth American actor was bragging of going to the notoriously rough-and-rowdy Limehouse neighborhood and trying to pick a fight. He got a fight all right, just not the one he was looking for. Chaplin berated him, saying, quote, I asked him just how tough you think you would be if you were living the life that some of these unfortunate families must live. How easy for him with his five meals a day beneath that thrust-out chest with his muscles trained and perfect, trying to start something with these people. This exchange broke up the party. As he returned to the Ritz, Chaplin found a group of homeless people under the hotel's arches. He secretly handed out all the cash he had on him. He spent the rest of his time in London socializing with aristocrats and famous artists. He found a lifelong friend in author Thomas Burke. Burke had spent his childhood in the same South London streets, and the two shared many things in common. But the quiet and reserved Burke was surprised to find Chaplin at odds with himself and his fame. He later wrote, quote, His initial enthusiasm over the mobs that followed him through the city had turned sour. Oh my God, Tommy, isn't it pathetic? Isn't it awful? These poor people should hang around me and shout, God bless you, Charlie, and want to touch my overcoat and laugh and even shed tears. And why? Why? Because I made them laugh? Because I cheered them up? Say, Tommy, what kind of filthy world is this that makes people lead such wretched lives that if anybody makes them laugh, they want to kiss his overcoat as though he were Jesus Christ raising him from the dead? He would later write, quote, Chaplin is first and last an actor. He lives only in a role, and without it he is lost. As he cannot find the inner Chaplin, there is nothing for him at grievous moments to retire into. Chaplin will be one of the sweetest fellows you have ever sat with, then without apparent cause, he will be all petulance and asperity. He has found nothing in life to hold on to. Having made a conquest of all peoples of the world, he is still the pilgrim, still looking for something and not knowing what it is. Chaplin cut his trip to England short and went to Paris, where he was greeted by more cheering crowds. By late September, he was in Berlin and found a very different scene. During the war, Germany's blockade of Western imports had largely insulated the country from Chaplin's stardom. Despite his previous melancholy over the throngs of adoring fans, Chaplin was even more upset by the lack of them. As author and travel companion Waldo Frank noted, quote, 
take away his magical popularity, dim it even for an hour, and Charlie's latent melancholy flames into hysterical rage. Chaplin was becoming dangerously addicted to the adrenaline of his celebrity. He found the dopamine he craved in a brilliant, ambitious, attention-loving actress. Her name was Pola Negri. Pola had become the most popular actress in Germany after starring in several Ernst Lubitsch films and Max Reinhardt theatrical productions. Though she spoke little English, the two superstars felt an immediate spark. They took pictures that show Pola's resentful date lurking in the background. Through a thick accent, she called him Jazzboy Charlie. Now the Germans have a word for someone who is a spiritual and physical double. A strange apparition that looks like you, acts like you, and yet isn't you. The word is doppelganger. And in Germany, Charlie had one. He just hadn't heard of him yet. Only a few months before Chaplin's arrival in Germany, Adolf Hitler had taken over the group that would soon be known as the Nazi Party. Many people were quick to point out the resemblance between the two men, some even suggesting that Hitler fashioned his mustache after Charlie's. This is most likely untrue, as Chaplin was not well known in Germany at the end of the war, and the toothbrush mustache that Hitler wore was popular among German NCOs because it fit under their gas masks. Regardless, the two men shared a shocking amount in common, which we will explore in depth in the next episode of our series. Chaplin briefly returned to Paris, and again England, but it was mostly filled with meet-and-greets and elbow-rubbing with other celebrities. He found out that Max Eastman had received a coveted invitation for an extended stay in the Soviet Union. Chaplin was disappointed that his competitive friend had gotten such an honor. He returned to New York, hung out with Harlem Renaissance poet Claude McKay, visited Sing Sing Prison, where he tried to cheer up the inmates with an impromptu speech, and then finally took a train back to L.A., where he dictated a travelogue of his journey titled My Trip Abroad. Its final line said, quote, If I can bring smiles to the tired eyes of Kennington and Whitechapel, if I have absorbed and understood the virtues and problems of those simpler people I have met, and if I have gathered the last bit of inspiration from those great personages who were kind to me, then this has been a wonderful trip, and somehow I am eager to get back to work and begin paying for it. However, upon arriving back in L.A., he did not get back to work. Instead, he was invited to dinner by Samuel Goldwyn, who introduced him to the radical bohemian sculptor Claire Sheridan. Claire was something of a contradiction herself. She was a war widow with a young son, an English aristocrat, Winston Churchill's niece, who also happened to be a socialist. She had just returned from Russia, having been commissioned to make busts of Lenin, Trotsky, and other Bolshevik leaders. Somewhat offended that Goldwyn had tried to set her up with Chaplin, she decided to make the most of it. She offered to make a bust of Charlie, hoping it could drum up some more business. He agreed, and for three days she struggled to make a sculpture of the hyperactive man who could barely sit still for 60 seconds. She, like most people who met him, was deeply charmed. She wrote in her diary, quote, I seem to have been talking heart to heart with one who understands, who is of deep thought and deep feeling. He is full of ideals and has a passion for what is beautiful. When she showed him the finished bust, he strangely commented, It could be an artist, or it might be a criminal. 
Both have a burning flame of impulse, vision, a sidetracked mind, and a deep sense of unlawfulness. Chaplin seems to have developed a subconscious awareness that his childlike infatuation with dreams also had a dark side. Chaplin invited Sheridan and her son Dickie on a camping trip, which is not a normal camping trip. It included a chauffeur, assistant, cook, and five individual tents and a portable kitchen. But after some kids tipped off the press of their location, their idyllic trip was ruined. When asked about Charlie's relationship with Claire Sheridan, press secretary Carlisle Robinson tactlessly said, quote, Mrs. Sheridan is old enough to be Mr. Chaplin's mother. She was four years older than Charlie. Perhaps it was this comment that killed the magic, but soon Claire had a 180-degree change of opinion. Quote, he looked at me strangely as I looked at him, and then he said, You know what's the matter? We don't know each other. And it was true. I was talking not with the elemental, wild-haired Charlie of the campfire, nor with the Charlie Chaplin of the films, but with a neatly dressed, smooth-haired young man I didn't even know by sight. Civilization and its trappings had changed us both. The past seemed tinged with unreality. I think it has all been a dream, he said. Sheridan returned to New York, where she opened a studio. Dickie would be sent to boarding school in England with a cherished hat worn by Jackie Coogan in The Kid. Chaplin finally returned to work for his last films with First National. His final two-reeler, Payday, was shot in just a month. In it, Charlie plays a lowly construction worker caught between a callous boss and a menacing wife. Now, this shortened production period corresponds to a change in Chaplin's work style. He was no longer improvising his way through a story. Now, copious story notes and ideas were written before any film was exposed. This greatly sped up his workflow. The film showed another advance in Chaplin's production. While he was traveling abroad, Roly Tothero was experimenting with Klieg stage lights that brought a much more dramatic and intentional visual style to the films. Chaplin was constantly receiving visits and letters from leftists asking for financial assistance and pushing him to make his films more explicitly political. For the most part, he resisted, although perhaps payday comes close. By pure coincidence, at this time, the first Chaplin films were being shown in the Soviet Union. Soviet director Nikolai Lebedev joyously declared, quote, Chaplin is an old member of the Socialist Party of America. We will have to consider the swift transfer of Comrade Chaplin from America to the RSFSR. In early 1922, Chaplin was approached by a communist organizer, literally named Plotkin, to raise money for striking railroad workers. All this attracted the attention of a man who would go on to haunt Chaplin for the next 50 years. I'm talking about one of the worst figures in our nation's history, whose paranoid imagination shaped American public life for over half a century. Of course, I'm talking about the great American boogeyman, J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover was born in a middle-class home in Washington, D.C. to an adoring and overpossessive mother. He put himself through law school and soon became a clerk at the Department of Justice, where he idolized Anthony Comstock, the New York City postal inspector who waged a war against vice, pornography, and birth control. In 1919, Hoover was the special assistant to the attorney general who instigated the first Red Scare. Hoover was promoted to acting director of the Bureau of Investigation, later renamed the FBI. Surveying his 650 employees, his first action as director fire all the women. 
and prevent their future hiring. Hoover embarked on the greatest surveillance project in American history, building up files on politicians, celebrities, and normal citizens at his discretion. He used this information as blackmail to force people to conform to his worldview. He began investigating Chaplin as soon as he took the job. He sent an agent to infiltrate a party at Chaplin Studios given in honor of the prominent labor leader, William Z. Foster. The agent reported that in addition to entertaining socialists, Chaplin went out of his way to insult the new MPPDA censor, Will Hayes, by saying, quote, We are against any kind of censorship, and particularly Presbyterian censorship. Chaplin then pointed to a sign above the men's toilet that read, Welcome, Will Hayes. Hoover passed this report on to Will Hayes, who was already peeved at Chaplin for being the only studio head that did not attend his Hollywood welcome party. And while Hoover was soon distracted by the Bureau's war against Prohibition-era gangsters, he would never completely forget Chaplin. Over the next 20 years, the Chaplin files grew, until finally Hoover was ready to strike. Not knowing that he had fallen under the Fed's surveillance, Chaplin had an impishly delicious idea. What if the tramp was actually an escaped convict? who steals the clothes of a minister and tricks a small town into partying and gambling in the name of God. He was just beginning production when Hollywood was rocked by yet another scandal. Only five months after Fatty Arbuckle's arrest, William Desmond Taylor, a popular Irish-American director, was found dead in his home on Alvarado Street in Westlake. Edna Purviance, his neighbor, was one of the first people on the scene. A man claiming to be a doctor declared Taylor was dead of a stomach hemorrhage and was then never seen again. Edna, or one of Taylor's servants, removed some of his personal effects before police arrived. When the cops did show up, they found that Taylor had been shot in the back. The investigation became a real-life Hollywood whodunit, full of conspiracies, inconsistencies, and potential perpetrators. Much of the suspicion was put upon Chaplin's old friend and Keystone director, Mabel Normand, whose cocaine-fueled fast living had begun to catch up with her. She was the last person to see Taylor alive that night. However, others believe that Paramount encouraged the stories about Normand to distract from the fact that Taylor's chauffeur had been arrested for soliciting male prostitutes in a public park on behalf of his boss. The case was never solved, but it added further fuel to the growing push for censorship under the MPPDA and Will Hayes. Hayes convinced Hollywood publicists to stop promoting the wild and over-the-top lifestyles of movie stars and got producers to put morality clauses in their actors' contracts. Although he had no means of actual enforcement, he asked that all films send their plot synopses to his office for review. Two days after the Taylor murder rocked Hollywood, another blow came to Chaplin. Back in New York, a neighbor had found Florence Deshawn unconscious in her apartment at 120 West 11th Street in Greenwich Village. Max Eastman rushed to St. Vincent's Hospital, but it was too late. She had died after suffocating from an open gas stove. Published as an accident, everyone who knew her knew the truth. At 26 years old, Florence had committed suicide. Her close friend Marie Howe said in a touching eulogy, quote, She loved freedom more than any woman I ever knew. To me, she was the very symbol of freedom, and now she is free from all the shackles of society 
and convention. A distraught Eastman tried to talk about it with Chaplin, but Charlie wouldn't respond. Eastman was disgusted, assuming Chaplin was too callous and too self-centered to care. However, as his future work would show, Chaplin was deeply affected by Florence's death, and he simply shut down. Months passed before Chaplin felt like he could return to work. Then, in a sudden fit of activity, he completed the pilgrim in 42 days, albeit with the religious satire greatly watered down. In the end, it was four reels long, technically making it his second feature film. Exhausted by their contentious four-year relationship, First National agreed to accept the four-reeler in lieu of two two-reelers that they were contractually owed. And finally, Chaplin was released from his contract and ready to make his first film for United Artists. The ever-business-minded Mary Pickford was relieved. She had waited three years for Chaplin to finally contribute to United Artists that was in desperate need of cash. By this point, she had already released almost ten films through United Artists. Doug Fairbanks had released five, D.W. Griffith, working out of his New York studio, had released seven, and Chaplin hadn't released one. But the toll from his erratic personal life had left Chaplin exhausted and doubting whether or not he could still be funny. Ever since he had played Billy the Page Boy in Sherlock Holmes, Chaplin had dreamed of being a serious dramatist. He resented the fact that people would laugh at him when he said he wanted to play Hamlet or Napoleon. So, taking advantage of his newly earned artistic freedom, Chaplin decided to shoot a serious, dramatic film without him in it. I can only imagine how pissed Pickford must have been, but she bit her tongue in the name of art and supported him. Now, at some point during the production of The Pilgrim, Chaplin had become involved with a notorious character from the 1920s, Peggy Hopkins Joyce. Originally from a small town in Virginia, Peggy left home at 15 to join a vaudeville troupe. She met and married millionaire Everett Arch Jr., only to divorce him six months later with a hefty settlement. She used the money to attend university, where she met and married a rich lawyer named Sherburn Hopkins. She soon divorced him and moved to New York City to pursue a career in show business. She made her Broadway debut in Ziegfeld's Follies and soon married her third husband, millionaire lumber baron J. Stanley Joyce. She spent a million dollars on a post-wedding shopping spree and soon became the most written-about woman in the American press. She was the Kim Kardashian of the 1920s famous for being famous. Her name appeared in songs by Cole Porter and Irving Berlin. She gave interviews in her bedroom wearing nothing but a sheer negligee. In a later tell-all book, she wrote, quote, True love was a heavy diamond bracelet, preferably one that arrived with its price tag intact. In total, she was married over six times and claimed to be engaged around 50 times. She was the inspiration behind the term gold digger. And in 1922, She arrived in Hollywood, set on a film career. She quickly met Chaplin, and the two had a brief affair. Although, ironically, it was not a manipulative one, like Claire Windsor. Chaplin seemed to be strangely impressed by her, and felt an ease with the poor country girl turned self-made millionaire. It's ironic, considering that Chaplin thought every woman he met was out to get his money. Maybe he appreciated that Peggy's intentions were more upfront. In her... He saw another scrappy hustler from the streets who had climbed out of poverty by making themselves the center of attention. They were together for a few weeks to the delight of the tabloids, 
He loved Peggy's wild stories about her marriages, her affair with a rich and famous Parisian publisher, and a young man who had committed suicide out of his desperate love for her. Throughout it all, she claimed she was just a simple girl at heart who desired only a home and children. Inspired by Peggy's stories, Chaplin spent six months working on the plot of his new film. Now, during this extended development process, Chaplin fell in with another notorious character from this time, legendary newspaper baron William Randolph Hearst. For those who don't know, Hearst was one of the richest and most famous people in the world. He's like the Elon Musk of the teens and 20s. Born into money, he controlled a massive network of newspapers and magazines and other businesses, and at the time was moving his film production company, Cosmopolitan Pictures, to the West Coast to make a star out of his longtime mistress, Marion Davies. He was also building a massive home that would later be known as Hearst Castle. Hearst brought a whole new level of wealth and intrigue to the already Babylonian Hollywood film colony. Throwing his money around without a second thought, he and Marion would host massive parties that attracted all the major stars and brought out the debauched lunacy that made the Roaring Twenties famous. Chaplin recalled, quote, If I were asked what personality in my life has made the deepest impression on me, I would say it was Hearst. Chaplin both idolized and feared the all-powerful tycoon, but that didn't stop him from taking a special interest in Marion Davies. Despite these distractions, Chaplin finally finished his new story, and the plot was deceptively simple. It was about a poor, it was about a poor French girl named Marie St. Clair. Her boyfriend, Jean, helps her escape from her tyrannical father, and the couple decides to elope to Paris. But when Jean's father suddenly dies, he misses their rendezvous, and Marie decides to go to Paris alone. A year later, Marie is the glittering but disenchanted mistress of a wealthy man, Pierre. But by chance, she reunites with Jean, who is now a struggling artist trying to support his mother. They fall in love again, and Jean proposes. Marie decides to leave Pierre, but overhears Jean reassuring his possessive mother that his proposal is not serious. Marie returns to Pierre. In despair, Jean shoots himself. The mother sets off to avenge his death, but has a change of heart when she sees Marie weeping over Jean's body. In an ironic anticlimax, Marie and the mother find redemption by returning to the country and raising orphans together. In the final shot, Marie cheerfully rides in the back of a hay cart. His secretary asks, By the way, whatever happened to Marie St. Clair? He shrugs with indifference as the two vehicles go in opposite directions down a lonesome road. By this time, Edna Purviance had worked really hard to moderate her drinking. She had lost a lot of the weight she had gained and was ready to make her return to the screen. Out of a mixture of guilt and gratitude for his longtime partner, Chaplin gave her the role of Marie St. Clair. He knew that her time as a young ingenue was coming to an end and wanted to help her find a new chapter of her career. Furthermore, he wanted to showcase her acting skills that the two had developed together over the years. What they created, with the help of actor Adolf Menjou, was one of the most underappreciated advancements in the history of acting on screen. It was called A Woman of Paris.
For this film, Chaplin decided that he was going to incorporate the naturalistic acting style that had slowly been revolutionizing the theaters of continental Europe for half a century. The style could possibly be traced back to Italian actor Tommaso Salvini. Playing the role of Othello, he didn't rely just on a mustache and blackface, as had been the tradition for 200 years, but instead mimicked the gestures and voice of a man he saw in Gibraltar. For over four decades, he toured with his Othello all over the world, always speaking his part in Italian and being surrounded by actors speaking the native language of whatever country they were in. No one cared. His performance was so emotive, people understood what he was communicating. His work inspired countless artists, but two in particular would change acting forever. The first was a Russian named Konstantin Stanislavsky. Stanislavsky would go on to found the Moscow Art Theater, where he pioneered realism on stage through the plays of Anton Chekhov. He then spent decades of his life developing systems and techniques to train actors so that they would no longer be subject to the whims of inspiration. Different versions of his work would be brought to America through three separate acting teachers, Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, and Sanford Meisner. Strasberg being associated with the so-called method acting, and Stella Adler being credited for discovering and training Marlon Brando. The other person touched by the work of Salvini was the revolutionary Italian actress Eleonora Duza. Duza was born to a couple of traveling actors and first started acting at the age of four. Her naturalistic style mesmerized audiences, inspiring quasi-religious experiences across Europe, South America, and the United States. She became known by a single name, Duza, which happened to spawn the phrase, that's a doozy, in response to seeing something amazing. In 1895, when Chaplin was touring with the eight Lancashire lads, Duza was in England becoming a household name through her rivalry with the most well-known stage actress of the day, the French-Jewish Sarah Bernhardt. The divine Sarah, as she was known, practiced a more formal style of acting with big gestures and theatrical makeup. Duza instead wore no makeup on stage. Playwright and critic George Bernard Shaw was amazed to watch her actually blush in response to a scene. Chaplin saw the great Duza on her final American tour in Henrik Ibsen's play Ghosts, and he said, quote, Eleonora Duza is the greatest artist I have ever seen. Her technique is so marvelously finished and complete that it ceases to be technique. Many people will say that American realism in acting didn't come until Brando's 1951 performance in A Streetcar Named Desire. But I would argue that Charlie Chaplin was in fact ahead of his time by 30 years. Minju would recall, quote, Aside from his own great talent as an actor, Chaplin had the ability to inspire other actors to perform their best. Within a few days, I realized that I was going to learn more about acting from Chaplin than I had ever learned from any director. He had one wonderful, unforgettable line that he kept repeating, Don't sell it. Remember they're peeking at you. From my early days in movies, I have been schooled in the exaggerated gestures and reactions that were thought necessary to tell a story in pantomime. But when I or any other actor would give out one of those big takes, Chaplin would just shake his head. I knew that I had just cut myself a large slice of ham and had tossed the scene out the window. Another pet line of Chaplin's was, Think the scene. I don't care what you do with your hands or your feet. If you think the scene, 
it will get over. It seems somewhat strange that for a man who was endlessly critical of himself, Chaplin would later write, quote, The basic essential of a great actor is that he loves himself in acting. Just a fervent love of theater is not sufficient. There must also be a fervent love of and belief in oneself. Much like in his own private life, Chaplin did not care for the self-examination of the so-called method style. Quote, I abhor dramatic schools that indulge in reflections and introspections to evoke the right emotion. The mere fact that a student must be mentally operated upon is sufficient proof that he should give up acting. Damn. <laughs> On the set of A Woman of Paris, there was no more improvising. Now Chaplin used his many-take style to slowly strip away all pretense and performance from the actors so that they could express an emotion with subtlety and restraint. The film is notable for several other technical innovations, such as one scene where Edna is at a train station. Instead of paying for an actual French train, Roly Tothero simply cut square windows into a 10-foot board. He then drew it across the front of a powerful spotlight, making it seem like the lights from the windows of the train were passing over Edna's face. In September 1923, the film was finished. Chaplin added a prophetic epitaph, quote, the world is not composed of heroes and villains, but of men and women with all the passions that God has given them. The ignorant condemn, but the wise pity. As he approached the premiere, Chaplin was getting really nervous about how the public would react to a film of his without him in it. He wrote a special overly apologetic program note saying, quote, While you are waiting, I can have a little heart-to-heart -heart talk with you. I've been thinking that the public wants a little more realism in pictures, whereby a story is pursued to the logical ending. In my first serious drama, A Woman of Paris, I've striven for realism, true to life. What you will see is life as I personally see it. The beauty, the sadness, the touches, the gaiety, all of which are necessary to make life interesting. I was over seven months making A Woman of Paris, and I enjoyed every moment of the time. However, if I have failed in my effort to entertain you, I feel it will be my loss. Nevertheless, I enjoyed making it, and sincerely hope you will enjoy seeing it. The film opened to incredible enthusiasm from critics. People championed this new acting style. Ernst Lubitsch, who had just moved to America after being hired by Mary Pickford, said, quote, it's the first silent picture to articulate irony and psychology. Author Robert Sherwood said, quote, There is more real genius in it than any picture I have ever seen. In London, an 18-year-old office worker walked out of his job after seeing the film and went to the nearest movie studio looking for employment. His name was Michael Powell and he would go on to be one of the most influential directors of all time. He said about seeing a woman of Paris, quote, Suddenly, the whole medium grew up before my eyes. A grown-up film with people behaving as they do in real life. Nobody had ever really done any realistic films at all before. It was all make-believe, you know, and emotions were make-believe, as well as the people. To think that this man, Chaplin, who had all the power in the world, and who was this clown, really could suddenly turn around and make a film that he wasn't in with this lovely woman, Edna Purviance, and how good she was. But despite all this praise from the current and future film intelligentsia, A Woman of Paris proved to be a box office failure. In some ways, the enthusiasm of the press did it a disservice. They overhyped the subtle dramatic film, and when people went only to discover that Chaplin wasn't in it, they were upset. 
Now, this is just my opinion, but I think there's another reason why the film struggled. I don't think people were ready to see such a dynamic and independent female protagonist on screen. Edna's character, Marie St. Clair, in a very subtle way, does not play into the common stereotypes of women at the time. She leaves her father, and ultimately her lover, and sets on her own. She has a casual sexual relationship with a wealthy man that did not fit into societal expectations. As author David Robinson writes, quote, In one scene, Edna and Minju were required to kiss. Chaplin said Minju had to express passion and yet make it clear that he was not in love with Marie. Edna had to show that the kiss was not objectionable to her, but that she was unhappy and bored. It was like engraving the Constitution on the head of a pen. The film is the only example from this time that I can think of that actually passes the Bechdel test, a modern measure of female representation of film. Developed by cartoonist Alison Bechdel, the test simply asks, does a story have two women speaking to each other about something other than a man? Even the ending, where Marie finds happiness caring for orphans with her dead lover's mother, while on the one hand it plays into maternal stereotypes, on the other it subverts the stereotypes about what a happy ending is. Instead of finding love with a man, Marie finds happiness in a completely manless space. Some people find the ending false and contrived, but I personally think it demonstrates some very smart storytelling. Mary Pickford was genuinely moved. She said after the premiere, quote, A woman of Paris allows us to think for ourselves and does not constantly undermine our intelligence. Charlie Chaplin is the greatest director of the screen. He is a pioneer. How he knows women, oh, how he knows women. I do not cry easily when seeing a picture, but I was all choked up. I had to go out in the garden and have it out by myself. How do we parse out that this serial womanizer and sexual predator who married teenagers can also be credited for making a groundbreaking film that explores the female perspective? I don't know. Email me your thoughts at BehindTheSlatePod at gmail.com. How do we handle Chaplin's legacy? Now, throughout the production, Chaplin rekindled an old flame with yet another groundbreaking cultural icon of the time. Pola Negri, the famous European actress, was back. Pola is an incredible character. She had survived poverty in her native Poland, as well as a severe bout of childhood tuberculosis, to go on and become a dancer and silent film star. After Ernst Lubitsch was hired to come to work in the United States by Mary Pickford, Paramount Studios offered Pola a contract. She was the first European star to be imported to Hollywood, blazing a trail that would soon be followed by Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, among many others. She was controversial dangerous, and emotionally extreme. Hollywood's first true femme fatale. But more than anything, she was devastatingly smart. A veteran of the European art scene, she saw right through Chaplin's intellectual pretensions. To her, he was just another lost little boy with a wagon full of gold, desperately seeking a mother. When Chaplin bought a 66-acre property down the hill from Doug and Mary's legendary Beverly Hills house, Pickfair, Pola was only too happy to help with the architectural design. The idea of moving in as Chaplin's new bride was appealing to the Hollywood outsider. Together, the queen of tragedy and the king of comedy could rival Doug and Mary for Hollywood's most popular couple. 
In an absolutely diabolical move, she called a bizarre press conference where reporters were admitted to her drawing room. It was there she cuddled up next to a visibly uncomfortable chaplain and said, quote, I am a European woman. I do not understand the custom, but I am, we are, what you say, Mr. Chaplin and I are engaged. Is that not so, Charlie? Chaplin swallowed hard and nodded along. The only problem was, there was really no physical attraction between them. As Rolly Tothra would recall about Charlie, quote, He always used to be very worried about his sexual ability. He'd want to be the teacher. But Pola was an experienced player of the Weimar. There was nothing he had that she hadn't seen before. So to compensate for their lack of bedroom chemistry, their relationship became a hilarious public show of dominance. For example, one night at a party, Pola, as she was wont to do, became overwhelmed by some emotion and dramatically fainted to the floor. As guests rushed to revive her, Chaplin couldn't help himself but fake swoon as well, comically landing next to her, an act that she did not appreciate. So to get back at him, Pola discovered Chaplin's incredibly dorky habit of memorizing ten large vocabulary words before every social engagement so that he would sound smart. She found and memorized his list, and whenever he tried to use one of his words in conversation, she would loudly over-exaggerate the same word just to embarrass him. Five weeks after the press conference, Chaplin was quoted to say he was too poor to be married. At which point, Pola declared that the engagement was off. Quote, I end. Just like that. I am very extreme. Six hours later, Chaplin showed up at her doorstep with reporters looking on, begging for a second chance. During one of their many subsequent fights, Pola perceived something about Chaplin at his worst that would prove to be incredibly telling. Quote, A strange, joyous expression of suffering passed over Charlie's face. She had surmised that he actually craved rejection and the accompanying drama, and that he was provoking her until he got it. Eventually, Pola ended the relationship for good, saying, quote, He is too experimental, as changing as the wind. He dramatizes everything. He experiments in love. In my opinion, Mr. Chaplin should never marry. He has not any quality for matrimony. I'm glad it is over, for it was interfering with my life, my work. I have great ambitions, and I am sure that I could not be a great actress as Mrs. Chaplin. She then went on to mock his sexual ability, calling his attempts at seduction, quote, a parody, an uproarious dumb show of rolling eyes and waving hands. Pola would be quick to rebound, first with actor Rod LaRock, and then with Rudolph Valentino. When Valentino unexpectedly died, Negri made a shocking scene at his funeral fainting multiple times, claiming they were engaged, and arranging for a massive floral arrangement that spelled out the name Pola to be placed on his coffin. Bold move. It's ironic that in later years, Pola, the supposedly dramatic one, was able to reflect on her affair with Chaplin with humor. Meanwhile, Charlie could not. As he usually did, he portrayed himself as the innocent, unwilling pawn of yet another conniving woman. But I think Pola's assessment is far more accurate. Chaplin had become addicted to love, sex, and the drama that came with it. His next affair with the Swedish actress Sigrid Holmquist ended with her putting a gun to his head and demanding he vow eternal fidelity to her. Later, he smirked to Samuel Goldwyn, quote, What a hot one she was. In late 1923, Chaplin's new home at 1085 Summit Drive was finally finished. 
Soon, his property would be bordered by the homes of Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton. It was one fine morning after breakfast with Doug that Charlie was amusing himself with an old stereopticon slide, showing an endless line of prospectors toiling up a mountainside in the midst of the 1896 Klondike Gold Rush. And with that simple inspiration, he set to work on his next great idea. At least that's the story Chaplin wants you to think. But as we've come to learn just about any time he tells you something too good to be true, it probably is. The real story is that many of the old gold rushers had ended up in Southern California. The great theater owner and impresario Sid Grauman, who had just built his legendary Egyptian theater and would go on to build the Chinese theater in 1926, had a special interest in the gold rush. See, his father had started the family business operating a tent show in Dawson City, Canada. And in 1924, Grauman had been circulating a script around town about the Klondike Gold Rush, written by an old prospector. Now, we can't say for sure, but it's highly likely that Grauman gave the script to his good friend, Charlie Chaplin. And this became the true inspiration for his next film, without ever acknowledging the original author. Given Chaplin's long development process, it raises an eyebrow that he filed copyright for this story a mere two months after the premiere of A Woman of Paris. At no other time in his career did Chaplin have such a clear and concrete story plan. Furthermore, Grauman remained an unofficial advisor throughout production. But regardless of where the story comes from, Chaplin set his team into action. They researched everything they could find about Alaska and the Klondike. His props department sought out dog sleighs and fur coats, which were quite hard to find in Southern California. He hired a trained brown bear named John Brown and a team of 10 huskies. He had set builders construct giant cycloramas of snow-capped mountaintops, as well as a teetering prospector's hut that could be rocked and pivoted with an elaborate system of pulleys. They shipped in over 100 barrels of flour, and 285 tons of salt to serve as snow. Chaplin cast the old Keystone leading man, Max Swain, as his fellow snowbound prospector, Big Jim McKay. And they immediately began shooting some of the most memorable scenes in the film as the Tramp and Big Jim are starving, trapped inside a snowbound cabin. In these famous scenes that would go down in movie history, Charlie boils and eats his boot. They shot this over three days and 63 takes. The edible boot was made out of licorice, which I know from firsthand experience is a powerful laxative. Both Chaplin and Mac repeatedly had to run off set to use the bathroom before returning to eat yet another boot. They also shot the legendary scene where Big Jim, crazed with hunger, imagines Charlie turning into a chicken, which would be repeated in films and cartoons for decades to come. Now, this effect is nothing short of a technical marvel. Back in 1924, there was no CGI. There were no VFX specialists. You couldn't hire industrial light and magic to solve your production problems. There wasn't even post-processing. If you wanted to do some kind of effect, even the most basic, fades, dissolves, irises, you had to figure out how to do it in camera. So here's how Charlie and Rolly Tothero figured out how to transform the tramp into a chicken. They would start the scene in ordinary costume. 
at a precise moment, the camera would be faded out by stopping down the aperture in the lens until the image was dark. Then, the scene, the camera, the other actor, everything had to be kept perfectly still while Charlie did a fast costume change into his chicken outfit. The camera would then be rewound to the start of the fade, and here's where it gets really crazy. On action, the camera would start up, fade in, and Chaplin would have to precisely retrace his movements that he had just filmed on the previous fade out so that the action synced together perfectly. In the gold rush, the precision of this effect is flawless, and it's even more remarkable when considering that they shot the coverage with two cameras simultaneously. Now, while all this is happening, Chaplin was casting the rest of the film. In the disappointing aftermath of A Woman of Paris, Edna had turned back to the bottle. To make matters worse, she had become involved in yet another scandal with Mabel Normand. On New Year's Day 1924, LAPD was called to an apartment on North Vermont Avenue where they found millionaire oil broker Cortland Dines bleeding profusely from a gunshot wound in the abdomen. In the kitchen was a panicked Edna Purviance and Mabel Normand, each claiming they had no idea how Dines was shot. Mabel's chauffeur eventually took responsibility, claiming an altercation had broken out, at which point he shot Dines with Mabel's revolver. Dines and Edna claimed they were too drunk to remember, a crime in and of itself, because it's prohibition. In the trial, the judge claimed, quote, There appears to be a conspiracy on the part of the witnesses to keep from the court many things that the court should know about the case. And while the truth will never be known, most believe that drugs were involved. Now, this was Mabel Norman's second major press disaster, having been suspected of being involved with the murder of director William Taylor. Edna's association with the Hollywood bad girl didn't help her already fragile state. A number of cities banned a woman of Paris, and Edna's career was effectively over. To Chaplin's credit, he supported her. He publicly declared that she was still a member of Chaplin Studios, and he retained her on a full salary, as he would do for the rest of her life. But he decided it was time to find a new leading lady. The news spread across Hollywood that Chaplin was looking for his next star. A young dancer named Myrna Kennedy told the news to her friend, Lolita McMurray, who three years earlier had portrayed the Angel of Temptation in the bizarre dream sequence at the end of The Kid. Together, the two 15-year-olds decided to go down to the Chaplin Studios and audition. Ignoring Myrna completely, Charlie immediately scheduled Lolita for a screen test. Despite Raleigh Tothero's and Sid Chaplin's concern for Charlie being so clearly infatuated with yet another minor, Chaplin signed Lilita to a year-long contract and agreed to change her professional name to Lita Gray. Chaplin's studio flooded newspapers with press releases to build up the reputation of their new star, with cringe-inducing passages like, quote, Of Lita personally, there is little to say, but she knows so much less of life than does the average jazzy, effervescent flapper. She idolizes Chaplin, but much as a child feels for some much older man who has shown her a great kindness. Observation indicates that Chaplin wields a powerful professional sway over his new protege, that almost hypnotic influence which the more masterful directors exert upon sensitive players before the camera. Lita had come from a moderately well-off family, one of the original land-grant Spanish-Mexican families from the late 1700s. But Lita's parents divorced when she was a baby, and her mother's second husband had died from tuberculosis. 
Lita's mother, Lillian, was a struggling single parent who relied on her overbearing father for financial and familial support. She became neighbors with Chaplin's assistant, Chuck Reisner, and that's how young Lilita met Charlie and was hired for the kid. Back then, Chaplin was in the midst of his divorce from Mildred, and members of the production team noticed that he was paying extra attention to the young Lilita. He staged a publicity photo of her recreating the pose of the Joshua Reynolds painting The Age of Innocence, and then created the bizarre Angel of Temptation dream sequence, where Lilita played the seductress. The fact that she was 12 made many crew members uncomfortable, and critics have noted that this dream sequence is totally out of place in the narrative of the kid. It introduces themes that aren't consistent with the character. It seems to be Chaplin's dramatic rendering of his inappropriate attraction to the young girl. Further complicating the situation for Lilita was the mental and financial boon her new job gave to her mother. While not making a huge amount of money, her employment allowed her mom to buy a car. She brimmed with pride that her daughter was working with the great genius Charlie Chaplin. Lillian was not the conniving monster she was portrayed to be in Kenneth Anger's entertaining but completely false book Hollywood Babylon. Instead, she was a struggling single mom who thought she and her daughter were finally catching a break. As production on The Kid wrapped up, Chaplin invited Lolita to join him at a birthday party. But when her mother insisted she have a chaperone, the plans were suddenly called off. Lillian confronted Chaplin, suspecting his ill motives. Chaplin became defensive. In the end, Lolita and Lillian's contracts were not renewed. Several biographers and historians have speculated that this encounter inspired the 1955 novel Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov, about a middle-aged literature professor who becomes obsessed with a 12-year-old girl. I have done a lot of research on this, and while I think Nabokov was drawing on multiple sources to expose the pervasive reality of teenage sexualization and pedophilia in mainstream American culture, I do believe he makes clear references to the Chaplin-Lilita relationship. It's an indelible mark of shame on Chaplin's vast cultural legacy. Three and a half years later, after seeing the 15-year-old's screen test, Chaplin declared, I'm going to marry that girl. Sidney replied, If you do, the headlines will read Chaplin robs the cradle. I'll keep it out of the papers, Charlie assured him. Production continued in the studio for about a month before it was time for the entire team to load into private train cars and travel 500 miles north to the town of Truckee. It was here Chaplin planned to recreate that famous picture of the long line of prospectors toiling up the mountainside. To do this, they hired a massive team to build an artificial pioneer town at an elevation of over 9,000 feet. They hired professional mountain climbers and ski jumpers to scale Mount Lincoln and carve a long path through the ice and snow down to their base camp. They then shipped in over 600 homeless men from Sacramento to act as derelict prospectors. And for two days, they forced these guys to toil up and down the mountainside, along with every other able-bodied crew member, including Lillian and the now-renamed Lita Gray. This type of extreme on-location filming was a relatively new practice, and Chaplin was most likely inspired by the legendary Eric von Stroheim film Greed, shot the previous year on location in Death Valley. Once again, check out our sister podcast, Seen and Heard, to learn more about this film. The shoot in Truckee was miserable. Freezing temperatures gave rampant rise to the flu. 
only for the weather to then suddenly change and cause all the snow they needed to then melt. Things got so tense that crew members feared that if they didn't wrap production quickly, the hundreds of hobos that were being housed in tents might mutiny. While Chaplin was bedridden with sickness, he called Lita to his bedside. While discussing her role, he took her hand and moved towards her, pressing his body against hers. Lita escaped his advances and said she had to go. Chaplin told her he couldn't help himself. She was too attractive. Lita recalls, quote, What would I do now? He is my boss, and I respect him. With all the beautiful women in Hollywood and elsewhere who would give anything to be pursued by the famous Charlie Chaplin, why me? What have I done or said that would make him act this way toward me? And now, how can I be comfortable in his presence? I felt guilty and frightened, but somehow flattered that he would want to make love to me. I did not tell Mama. I was happy being a part of his film. I did not want to spoil it in any way. They returned to the studio in May, where the scenic builders had constructed giant fake mountains that were visible for miles around. Chaplin, meanwhile, devised a way to keep seeing Lita without the watchful eye of her mother. He found a chaperone in socialite Thelma Morgan Converse, who was the twin sister to Gloria Vanderbilt. She was smitten with Chaplin and believed he was equally enamored with her. He told her that she was accompanying a new starlet in the making. Thelma entertained Lita and Chaplin out on the town. However, after dropping off Thelma early, Chaplin took Lita back to his newly constructed mansion, alone. After giving her a tour of his colossal house, he brought her upstairs to the brand new state-of-the-art steam room and invited her to take a steam bath. After a few minutes alone, Chaplin entered without clothes and pressured her into sex. Lita recalls, Quote, I thought to myself that I had asked for this, that I had secretly hoped this would happen. As soon as I arrived home, I got out of the car and dashed upstairs. Mama never suspected a thing. My naivete was rivaled only by hers. This pattern continued for months. Although confused, Lita describes this as a happy time. They went to dinner with fascinating famous people. Chaplin opened up about his work and interests, including his long-running desire to make a film about Napoleon, with Lita as his beautiful Josephine. Quote, As I look back on those evenings, it astounds me that Charlie was never troubled by the possibility of my becoming pregnant. I can only attribute this to the childlike nature of the man. Back on set, the heat was sweltering. Max Swain, who had a heart condition, found the full beard and heavy parka too much to bear. He told Charlie that he couldn't keep doing the many takes Chaplin insisted upon. Chaplin fired him on the spot. But as soon as Mac left the studio, Chaplin reconsidered. When he went to Swain's house to apologize, he found Mac had shaved the grizzled beard. Rather than just use a prop, Chaplin decided to shut down the studio and wait for Mac's beard to grow back. In the hiatus, an idle chaplain began taking more and more risks. In addition to his time with Lita, he was spending more and more time with Hearst's mistress, Marion Davies. By this point, Marion had overtaken Mary Pickford as the highest-paid actress in Hollywood. Despite her reputation as a gold-digging bimbo with an obvious stutter, Marion was actually a witty, warm-hearted person who tempered her ambition with a down-to-earth humor and was known to wisecrack her way through life. When her current film, Xander, required her to do a scene with a trained lion, 
Marion was too scared to get close to the animal, so Chaplin went to her set, put on a dress and a blonde wig, and stood in for her. The two began having an affair. Chaplin would visit Marion's dressing room in secret, sometimes having to hide under the cot to avoid being seen by the hundreds of Hearst associates. No doubt this secret spy game added to the thrill. Like a drug addict, searching for a bigger high, Chaplin upped the ante again, this time inviting Lita and her mother, along with several other guests, to his house for swimming and dinner. Chaplin then invited them to spend the night. After settling down in the guest room, Lillian awoke to discover her 15-year-old daughter sneaking into the bed of her 34-year-old boss. Lillian screamed. Chaplin tried to calm her down by assuring her that he had every intention of marrying her, but Lillian wouldn't listen. Lita recalls, quote, Back in the guest room, I stared at the ceiling. I heard Mama crying for a long time. It was to be the first of many sleepless nights for me. Two weeks later, Lita discovered that she was pregnant. When Lillian timidly asked her Irish Catholic doctor about the possibility of an abortion, the doctor emphatically replied, quote, you go back and tell the father he has to marry her. With an abortion out of the question, Chaplin suggested they find someone closer to Lita's age for her to marry, with him paying a $20,000 dowry. When Lillian refused that, Chaplin convinced himself that she and Lita had been out to entrap him in the marriage all along. A month passed without word from Charlie. Suffering from the horror and confusion of everything she had experienced, plus morning sickness, Lita told the truth to her grandfather. That son of a bitch, I'll kill him, he said. He called Lita's uncle, a high-powered lawyer in San Francisco, who contacted Chaplin to remind him of the penalties for statutory rape. Thirty years in prison. At the same time, Chaplin was fighting with Mary Pickford, who had invited producer Joseph Schenck to join United Artists as a partner, bringing along the contracts of his wife Norma Talmadge and the romantic leading man Rudolph Valentino. Chaplin planned to use his voting power as leverage to renegotiate his contract. And in the middle of this personal and professional shitstorm, in which Chaplin claims to have been near suicidal, somehow he finds a way to make it even worse. Rumors of his affair with Marion Davies were beginning to circulate in the press. And Hearst, despite being much older and married, was viciously jealous. On November 18th, Hearst invited Chaplin to a party on his yacht, the Oneida. There were about 15 to 20 people on board, including Marion Davies, gossip columnist and original scriptwriter of SNA Studios, Luella Parsons, Dr. Daniel Goodman, and producer Thomas Harper Entz. The trip was supposed to be a birthday party for Entz, the father of Westerns, who had given Mildred Harris her first gig back in 1909, and who was also a practicing theosophist meaning he, along with his wife, believed in the bizarre occult teachings of Madame Helena Blavatsky, a detail which has very little to do with this story, but I just had to throw it in there because I find it fascinating. At the time, Hearst was trying to close a deal that would have Ince come work for his cosmopolitan picture company. But what happened next is one of the great conspiracies of old Hollywood. Late in the night of November 19th, a San Diego water taxi was called to the Oneida. The boat took Ince ashore, accompanied by Dr. Goodman. They supposedly boarded a train for L.A., but when Ince fell ill, 
they got off at Del Mar and went to a hotel. Goodman called another doctor along with Tom Ince's wife. When she arrived, Dr. Goodman was gone. Tom Ince died a few hours later. The official death certificate claimed heart failure. There was no investigation, and his body was immediately cremated the following day, possibly due to their theosophist beliefs. Or maybe because someone wanted to get rid of the body. The Hearst Papers issued a statement claiming Ince was visiting Hearst's upstate ranch, despite all of his associates knowing that he was going to be on the Oneida. The morning edition of the LA Times instead ran the headline, quote, Movie producer shot on Hearst yacht. But by the evening edition, this headline had been removed. Hearst's papers then claimed that Ince had a peptic ulcer rupture after an evening of champagne and salted almonds. Marion Davies said there were no firearms on board, but Hearst's biographer recorded that Hearst always kept a hidden gun in a flower pot. In his autobiography, Chaplin denied having been on the boat, despite all the other guests putting him on board. He then goes on to claim that he, along with Hearst and Davies, visited Ince a week after the incident and that Ince died then two weeks after that, even though there are photographs of him being present at the funeral a mere 48 hours after the death. Some people on the boat claimed that they had been sworn to secrecy. But the most interesting rumor came from Chaplin's discreet and loyal chauffeur, Taraichi Kono. Kono was waiting on the dock to pick Chaplin up and take him to a United Artists meeting. Instead, he saw Ince being carried off the water taxi, bleeding from a bullet wound to the head. Rumors spread that late at night, Marion was helping Ince look for something to calm his upset stomach. Hurst found them in the darkness and mistook Ince, a small man with similar hair, to be Chaplin and shot him. Whatever the truth was, the incident had a severe fallout. Lita Gray would later recall, quote, Charlie finally decided to go ahead with our marriage less than a week after the Ince tragedy. It is merely conjecture on my part, but I feel that by marrying me, Charlie was also pacifying Hearst. It was a gesture that implied that in the future, Charlie would confine his attentions to me and not Marion Davies. As part of his plans for a secret marriage, Chaplin dispatched his lawyer to file incorporation papers for a new film corporation in Delaware that would shelter his assets for the inevitable divorce. To keep the press from discovering the truth, Chaplin sent Lita, her mother, and her uncle to Guaymas, Mexico, along with a small group of crew members from the Gold Rush. He told the few newsmen that followed him to the train station that he was setting some scenes for the Gold Rush in Mexico. The next day, he went so far as to rent a fishing boat and send his crew to shoot random B-roll of the ocean, which still survives. That evening, Chaplin, his assistant Chuck Reisner, Lita's mother, and Lita drove to a dismal railway junction on the edge of the Yaqui Indian Territory, where they performed a sad wedding with a civil judge that didn't speak English. Lita would recall, quote, Words cannot describe how grim the wedding actually was. Charlie really outdid himself in arranging the most depressing marriage possible. To make matters worse, I was suffering from morning sickness on the day of the wedding. I did not see him again until late that night, when he joined me in the drawing room of the train headed back towards Los Angeles. I heard him outside the drawing room say to his entourage, Well, boys, this is better than the penitentiary, 
but it won't last long. He then sat down across from his pregnant child bride and told her, Don't expect me to be a husband to you, for I won't be. I'll do certain things for appearance's sake. Beyond that, nothing. Feeling sick, Lita asked him for a glass of water. He said, Get it yourself. You might later claim I tried to poison you. Later that night, while standing at the rear platform of a moving train car, Chaplin made what I will generously say is a pathetic attempt at a joke when he told Lita, You know, we could put an end to this misery if you'd just jump. When they got back to California, the press had found out about the marriage. They were mobbed from the train station to his house. They printed bizarre stories, such as this article from the New York Daily News that read, quote, He has married Lita Gray, his leading lady. Marrying leading ladies seems to be a weakness among male screen and stage stars. Why? We don't know. But he and his leading lady are about to tackle the toughest crossword puzzle of the ages, married life. So often there are more crosswords than there are solutions, and frequently a synonym of four letters meaning love is set down on the matrimonial patchwork as bunk. We wish Mr. Chaplin and Miss Gray the conventional quota of joy, but if they have to give up the puzzle, we have this consolation. The best clowns have broken hearts, and no tragedy could be as great as spoiling the best clown of the screen by making him too happy. Lita was not to remain leading lady for long. As his press agent explained a few days later, Lita had willingly given up her role in the gold rush because now she was married and wanted to devote every moment of her time to her husband. At his house, Chaplin subjected Lita to verbal tirades. Insults of blackmailer, gold digger, and Mexican whore were common. Quote, Charlie had the ability to make himself believe that everyone was to blame for his problems and that he was faultless. If there ever was a Jekyll and Hyde, it was Charlie Chaplin. It was the same Charlie who had, only a short time ago, pledged his love for me. It was too much for me to understand. While Polinegri was experienced enough to recognize the perverse pleasure Chaplin got from fighting, Lita had no idea what was going on. She had never so much as dated somebody before Chaplin took advantage of her, and now she found herself pregnant and trapped in the home of a monster. Chaplin's behavior became increasingly frightening. He suffered from insomnia, he began taking 8-10 to 10 baths a day, he became paranoid, believing that someone from the press was watching him and he would creep around the property with a thirty-eight caliber handgun, and at one point he threatened Lita with the weapon. Sid would later recall that Chaplin was afraid he was going insane like his mother. Throughout it all, he still expected sex from her. She would later quip with irony, quote, I can say this about my sex life with old Charlie, not good, but often. The public had no awareness of Lita's abuse. As radio comedian Will Rogers joked, quote, This girl doesn't need to go to school. Any girl smart enough to marry Charlie Chaplin should be lecturing at Vassar on taking advantage of your opportunities. Unable to stand being in the same room with his wife, Chaplin rented a separate house for Lita to live. Her only company was the kind Taraichi Kono, who, disapproving of his employer's behavior, gave her money and brought her home-cooked meals. After about a month away, Charlie suddenly reappeared at Lita's house back to his old affectionate self. He brought gifts and apologized for his behavior. He invited Lillian to move in, and while her support and companionship was critical during the pregnancy— her mother's experience with multiple failed marriages meant that she didn't have the best advice. Throughout everything, 
she encouraged Lita to be nice and hope that the marriage would work out. Meanwhile, Chaplin returned to the studio. He cast 24-year-old Georgia Hale as Lita's replacement. Georgia was a dancer turned actress that had starred in the first film of Austrian-American director Joseph von Sternberg. For Georgia, it was a dream come true. They worked well together, but soon began having an affair while Lita remained home throughout the pregnancy. They set to work filming the dance hall scenes, in which the ragged tramp, having survived the trials of the wilderness, returns to a mining town and falls in love with a dance hall girl. It's interesting to note here how much the tramp had changed as a character. You know, back in the Keystone days, he was a lecherous, woman-chasing madman. And now, with his creator acting more like the tramp of old, the character had become so shy and innocent that he couldn't even bring himself to talk to the dance hall girl of his dreams. The shoots were long and tiresome, requiring as many as 100 extras. At most studios during the silent period, productions would employ instrumental groups or even small orchestras to play mood music that would inspire the actors. Chaplin Studios never found that necessary. However, during these scenes, they did hire an orchestra. Possibly it was the music that inspired another one of Chaplin's iconic scenes, the famed Dance of the Rolls. In this scene, the poor tramp has invited the music hall girl back to his shabby cabin for a New Year's Eve celebration. But when she doesn't show up, he dreams that he's entertaining her and her friends by dancing using forks stuck in dinner rolls as feet. This gag was actually from a 1918 Fatty Arbuckle film, but while Arbuckle makes it a funny bit, Chaplin elevates it to comic genius. Chaplin wrapped up shooting in spring of 1925. The shoot had taken a year and three months. For nine weeks, Chaplin cut down the 231,000 feet of film to 8,555 feet, making it his longest feature to date. He took a brief break in early May as Lita gave birth to their son, Charles Chaplin Jr., a name Lita insisted on. But then it was back to the editing room while Lita suffered a postnatal illness. Chaplin decided it was best to keep the birth a secret since they had only been married for six months. He paid a bribe to the doctor to falsify the birth certificate, changing Charlie Jr.'s birth date to June 28th, two days after the premiere of The Gold Rush. The film premiered on June 26 at Grauman's Egyptian Theater. It was the greatest spectacle in Hollywood history. The crowd was a who's who of A-list stars, all announced by a stentorian voice as they entered the building, prompting applause according to his or her degree of popularity. This was the first time these announcements had been made at a movie premiere. Author David Robinson writes of the pre-show spectacle arranged by Grauman, quote, the curtain opens on a panorama of the frozen north, revealing a school of seals mounting a jagged crack of ice. The seals were quickly joined by a group of Eskimo dancing girls. They were followed by a series of impressively artistic dances by fascinatingly pretty young women. The numbers which followed included ice skating, a balloon act, and a Monte Carlo dancehall scene. Georgia Hall recalled that this was the one rare occasion 
where Chaplin had no self-doubt about his work. Quote, he really felt it was the greatest picture he had ever made. Struggling to juggle his personal and professional life, Chaplin went to the New York premiere and his mood swelled into a mania. He canceled all his interviews and instead cavorted about town, going to parties and nightclubs, flirting with every woman he saw. A few days before the premiere, he crashed. He sat up in bed, called for his assistant, and claimed he was dying. He even called his lawyer and rewrote his will. All the while, Chaplin couldn't stop crying. The film went on to be a massive success in New York and across the world. In London, the BBC did a live broadcast of a solid 10 minutes of laughter recorded during the premiere. In Berlin, the audience went so wild over the dance of the roles that the theater manager ordered the projectionist to roll the film backwards and play it again. The live orchestra picked up their cue, and the reprise was greeted with even more applause. The Gold Rush would go on to become the highest-grossing silent comedy of all time. Setting aside the man's personal life, I agree with what writer and critic Lucy Santee said in the Criterion essay about the film. Quote, Watching it is a weirdly communal experience, even if you were taking it in on a small screen alone in your room. Watching along with you, spectrally, are most of a century's worth of people in every corner of the globe, in opulent movie palaces and slum storefronts, on state-of-the-art equipment and sheets hung from trees. Its humor and poetry transcend cultural and historical boundaries, and there has never been a time when that was in doubt. After the premiere, Chaplin stayed in New York. Instead of returning to Lita and his newborn son, Chaplin spent two months living it up in the Ambassador Hotel with Ziegfeld Follies dancer, 18-year-old Louisa Brooks, who would later become an actress and fashion icon who popularized the bob haircut. She recalled her time with Chaplin fondly, saying, quote, I never heard him say a snide thing about anyone. He lived totally without fear. Well, almost. She did add that he was terrified of contracting a venereal disease and began painting his penis with iodine, which she called his little red sword. After blowing off the press for months, Chaplin held a manic press conference at a restaurant where he claimed, quote, That's the beauty of having money and independence. I don't have to keep dates. I'm a rebel. When asked if he missed his wife and son, he declared he could easily love 12 women at the same time. When a woman seated at another table brought her little girl over to meet him, Chaplin joked, quote, that girl is almost as old as my wife. The reporters just laughed. It was then he received the call that Lita was once again pregnant. He exclaimed, She can't do this to me! before falling into a pitiful stupor. However, when he returned to California, he was all smiles. He brought with him a diamond ring, and Lita began to think that maybe her mother was right, and that Chaplin was finally starting to come around. These were the good times of the marriage. Charlie and Lita enjoyed a full social calendar. They attended Marion Davies' costume ball dressed as Napoleon and Josephine, a continuous obsession of Chaplin's going all the way back to his childhood. At the party, Lita was cornered by the forever drunk John Barrymore, who told her about Marion and Charlie's affair while offering her the opportunity to get even. She said no. Just before she died, Lita Gray gave some short interviews about this time of her life. What was my home life like? Well, I was busy having children. I had one boy each year. And um, 
so I didn't have much social life. I was I was really hungry for people my own age. I was pretty much of a kid, you know, at 17. And uh, our company was mainly people like Albert Einstein, very serious, you know. And at 17, I, I just thought the way he looked, he just looked like a dirty old man to me. <laughs> Long hair down onto his shoulders and a dreary, dreamy look out of his eyes. And uh, they didn't have much to say to each other until they got on the subject of music. Okay, hold on. Let's just think about how awkward this is, okay? You've got Einstein in his 40s with his wife sitting across from Chaplin and his 16-year-old child bride, and they can't find anything to talk about until finally uh, they're like, uh, you like music? Yeah, I like music. Yeah, me too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Music's the best. I mean, this is just ridiculous. It just made me more hungry than ever to have young people, you know, for for company, and he okayed a party that I was going to give uh, at the Biltmore downtown. He okayed that, said it was all right if I had a bunch of young people. And they just put the phonograph record on and dance and act silly like young people do. And I had taken them back to the house to have a good time, and when Charlie came home, he threw them all out. He was so mad. I felt really brokenhearted, you know, that he was so fatherly. They met tons of famous people, attended parties at Pickfair and Hearst Castle. Lita even befriended Marion Davies, who assured her that her brief affair with Chaplin ended long before their marriage. But beneath the surface, Chaplin was seized with a nightmarish vision. He imagined that he was trapped high on a tightrope above the ring of a circus. He has no net, no safety harness. Suddenly, he's attacked by monkeys, and they rip off his pants, only he's forgotten to put on his tights. As he struggles to dress himself, he falls to his death. And thinking it was all part of the act, the audience applauds. This horrible farce, which may have been a conscious or unconscious metaphor of his personal life, would become the basis of his next film, a project that would be dogged by problems from the very start the Circus. Swing, little girl, swing high to the sky, and don't ever look at the ground. If you're looking for rainbows, look up. To the sky You'll never Find rainbows If you're Looking down Life may be dreary Chaplin hired a new assistant Named Harry Crocker A tall, handsome young actor He was a friend of Marion's And had been hired as a chaperone To keep Chaplin out of trouble Former assistant director Eddie Sutherland told him quote, If you're smart you enter Chaplin on your books as a son of a bitch. I thought it better to start off with that appellation of him in mind. Then when he behaves badly, it doesn't come as quite the shock it might otherwise be, and all his good behavior comes as quite a pleasant surprise. Chaplin and Crocker took a trip upstate to flesh out the new story. No sooner had they gotten in the car when Chaplin started talking and talking and talking. As Crocker listened in uncomfortable amazement, Chaplin manically prattled on. Over their nine-day trip, 
Chaplin at one point spoke for 28 hours straight. The intellectual improvisation he had worked so hard to cultivate was now stuck in a manic overdrive that he couldn't turn off. They returned from the trip without any solutions to the story. Meanwhile, Mary Pickford was trying to save United Artists from a debt problem by signing a deal with MGM. But Chaplin, possibly at the behest of his friend Samuel Goldwyn, who had recently been ousted from the company he gave his name to, vetoed the deal. Considering Chaplin had barely contributed to UA and had done nothing to help its struggling financial situation, Mary never forgave him. Charlie finally decided upon a plot. In the film, the tramp finds a traveling circus that is doing bad business. But when he is chased around the ring by police, his accidents prove to be a big hit with the audience. He is taken on as a clown, but he's only funny when he doesn't intend to be. He falls in love with the daughter of the cruel circus owner. But when Rex, the new high-wire walker, arrives, he steals the girl's heart. Trying to emulate his rival, the tramp attempts the high-wire act. Believing he is harnessed in, he performs death-defying stunts, hoping to earn the affections of the girl. But upon realizing that his safety harness has become unattached, he freezes and is unable to perform. Facing defeat, he instead helps the couple elope and is left alone in the ring of trodden grass that the traveling circus has left behind. As the first sets were being built, Chaplin and Crocker, who would be cast as Rex, both learned to walk the tightrope, practicing hours every day. The scenes could have easily been shot a few feet off the ground with a painted backdrop, but Chaplin insisted that they do it for real. He walked the tightrope at 37 feet above the ground. They were almost ready to shoot when the first disaster struck. A rough storm blew through, damaging the tent. Surviving notes show that the heroine's name was originally Georgia, suggesting Georgia Hale was meant for the role. We don't know why she wasn't cast, but in her stead, Lita suggested her old friend Myrna Kennedy. After much arguing, Chaplin agreed to call Myrna in for a screen test. He gave her the part. Lita was overjoyed, believing this was more evidence that her husband was finally beginning to respect her and her opinion. Shooting began on Monday, January 11, 1926. The first month was taken up by shooting the tightrope scenes a break from Chaplin's usual method of shooting the films in chronological sequence, but since this was the only part he had fully worked out in his head, he decided to shoot it first. It required over 300 extras, along with several circus animals, including an elephant, whose day rate was $150 a day. By February, Chaplin was sick when the next disaster struck. They discovered that all the footage was marred by scratches caused by a mistake in the development lab. Chaplin fired the entire unit and had to reshoot everything again. By the time the reshoots were over, Chaplin had performed over 700 takes on the tightrope. Production was paused briefly in March when Lita gave birth five weeks early to their second child, Sidney Earl Chaplin. This time, it was Lita who resisted the name. She hated Sidney Chaplin ever since he made a pass at her shortly after her marriage to Charlie. The day after the birth, Charlie was back at work, rehearsing the mirror maze scene. Further delays were caused when the widening of Sunset Boulevard required several studio buildings to be moved back from their original property line. Unseasonable rain and heat continued. On September 7th, the studio was shut down for Rudolph Valentino's funeral, at which Chaplin served as a pallbearer. 
These delays were exacerbated by Chaplin's moods. He would repeatedly crash off of his manic high, falling into a moody depression. Sometimes he wouldn't show up at the studio or he'd let endless brainstorm sessions and unnecessary reshoots waste away the days. Then, on September 28th, a fire swept through the closed stage, completely destroying the props and equipment. The glass roof and walls were broken and all the electrical equipment fried. Lita, now lonely at home with two infants, had repeatedly asked her best friend Myrna to visit her throughout production. With the shoot on hold, Myrna obliged. But when she arrived, Lita couldn't help but notice a large diamond bracelet on Myrna's wrist. When she asked her about it, Myrna said, quote, Charlie gave me this bracelet. He said I was so pretty that he'd like to use me as Josephine in a Napoleon picture he's planning to make. Lita immediately realized what was going on. She confronted Chaplin, horrified that he would have an affair with her childhood best friend. Chaplin didn't deny it. Instead, he threw it in her face, explaining that he no longer loved her after she, quote, forced him into a marriage with that money-grubbing family of yours. Sex doesn't mean love. To get her out of the way, he sent Lita and Lillian on a trip to Hawaii so that he could finish the film. While traveling, Lita opened up to her mother. But even after telling her mother that Charlie threatened her with a gun, her mother brushed it off. Quote, she said Charlie was an actor and that he was just being theatrical. Her past marital mistakes left her convinced I should try harder and be patient. I disagreed. I now have two children. Am I not obliged to provide them with a home that has love and fidelity? Should I subject them to the knowledge that their father behaves so amorally? At the end of November, Lita returned from her trip. She took the two children and left the lonely mansion. Chaplin called her, begging her to return. When she asked that he give her $10,000 to settle out of court, he called her, quote, a money-grubbing bitch that wouldn't get a cent out of him. Lita's uncle moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles to begin preparing her case. Meanwhile, Chaplin took every effort to protect the circus. Once again, he had the footage packed up and shipped it off to New Jersey. On December 5th, a notice was posted that the studio operations were temporarily suspended and the staff was cut to a minimum. Then, in what I can only call a moment of historical karma, Chaplin received another blow. The IRS was conducting an audit of his personal finances and the relationship with United Artists. For a year, he'd been moving money in and out of UA in an attempt to hide his net worth. He had given out giant loans to Sam Goldwyn, and when challenged by a United Artists accountant, he had Arthur Kelly put in the role of treasurer. All this caught the eyes of the feds. Sid was audited as well for his non-film business pursuits. Sidney had become an amateur aviation tycoon. He briefly controlled the landing rights to Catalina Island. And in 1919, when the U.S. government was selling surplus military planes, Sid bought 400 of them, briefly making him the largest owner of private aircraft in the country. However, far from being an aviation visionary, this purchase was more likely a tactic to reduce his tax liability. Agents discovered a large amount of money had been paid from the Charles Chaplin Film Company to Sydney and then given back to Charlie as undeclared personal income. Jail or deportation was looming for both the Chaplin brothers. 
Chaplin was despondent. Fearing that he might attempt suicide, Alf Reeves assigned studio employees to watch him 24-7. One such chaperone recalled, quote, Never once did he admit any guilt of his own doing. Fear gripped him like a vice. His greatest concern was monetary. His ruin at the box office, fame, and fortune wiped out. Chaplin left for New York to escape being subpoenaed by Lita's lawyers and the California Tax Bureau. The next day, Lita's lawyers filed the legendary divorce complaint. And normally, complaints ranged from three to four pages, but at 42 pages long, this document was unprecedented in legal history of divorce. Much to Lita's horror, it was packed full with salacious details, including Chaplin's sexual preferences, his request that Lita perform a threesome, and that they engage in oral sex, which was technically illegal under California sodomy laws. Details of Chaplin wanting her to get an abortion and threatening her at gunpoint were included. It also dropped a bombshell that Chaplin had engaged in an affair with a, quote, certain prominent film actress, which was assumed to be Edna Purviance. The complaint was so salacious that it was pirated and sold in bound copies on street corners across the country. Unfortunately, in this, Lita was once again a victim. She didn't want all this dirty laundry aired in public. She would later admit that her uncle, Edwin, wrote the document and had exaggerated some of the facts to humiliate Chaplin. Lita's lawyers raided the Chaplin studio but found the safe empty. She was given provisional alimony of $3,000 and temporary occupation of the house. Not that she wanted to live in that big lonely mansion that had been more like a prison. Chaplin's lawyers proposed the insulting settlement of $25 a week for Lita and the children. Uncle Edwin turned this into a nationwide propaganda campaign, with one woman's club even starting a milk fund for the Chaplin babies. The judge ordered Chaplin to pay $4,000, but Lita could not collect it because the IRS had staked its own claim to Chaplin's assets. They were now claiming that Chaplin owed a total of $1,073,721.47 in back taxes. It's about $18.3 million in today's money. They agreed that they were willing to forego prosecution if Chaplin admitted to a criminal misdemeanor. If he accepted the deal, he would be deported. That night, Taraichi Kono claims that Chaplin tried to jump out of the window of his hotel suite. During the closed depositions, it was revealed that Chaplin had bugged Lita's room in an effort to get information that might help him in the future divorce. Furthermore, one of Chaplin's servants revealed that Chaplin had sex with Marion Davies while Lita was upstairs giving birth to their second son. The press was split in two. Rural parts of the country banned Chaplin's films. In a letter to the New York Herald Tribune, a Mrs. R.T. Niles said, quote, Chaplin has an unfortunate habit of getting himself mixed up with young women whom he subsequently marries, probably to keep out of prison or from being deported. Is this man to be permitted to run riot for the rest of his life amid the foolish little girls of this country? But in the big cities, the feeling was different. The Women's Club of Miami Beach encouraged local theater owners to show what they thought was the, quote, silly agitation which women's clubs have taken in regard to Chaplin's pictures. The Baltimore Sun ran an editorial that read like an angry Facebook post, quote, The very morons who worshipped Charlie Chaplin six weeks ago now prepare to dance around the stake while he is burned, 
He is learning something of the psychology of the mob. Chaplin's team fueled the fire. They used racist tropes toward Mexicans to paint Lita as an unfit mother. They claimed she drank and had affairs with other men, both of which were completely untrue. They spread rumors that Lillian was a stage mom who forced her young daughter upon the unsuspecting superstar. In response, Lita's lawyers declared that they would name an additional five prominent actresses that were illicitly involved with Chaplin. The sad truth is that Chaplin would have survived those outings, and instead it would be the actresses whose professional careers would suffer. At this point, Lita had had enough. Having gone through this hell of a marriage, and having learned the dirty, hard-nosed tactics of the rich and famous, she made an absolutely boss move. She personally visited Marion Davies and threatened to name her as the prominent moving picture actress. Quote, Marion was visibly shaken. I left her with a glass of champagne in one hand and a telephone in the other. No doubt she called both Charlie and Hearst. It did the trick. A few days later, Charlie was ready to settle. Lita was awarded the largest divorce settlement in California history to that time. $625,000 in damages, plus $100,000 in trust for each child. Lita's uncle thought he could destroy Chaplin, but the public, possibly suffering from scandal fatigue, was more forgiving. As one newspaper article put it, quote, There has been enough washing of movie dirty linen in public to have a depressing effect on more than one reputation which lost its earning capacity. Whatever the reason, a rising vote of thanks to Charlie for sparing us the minute details of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness with the little woman. With the divorce settled, Chaplin's lawyers negotiated with the IRS to drop the misdemeanor charge, and almost immediately, the $1 million in back taxes was anteed up. Chaplin raced back to California to finish the circus. It had been almost a 10-month break in the shoot. Los Angeles had grown so fast that several rural exterior locations had suddenly become new suburbs. They still had to shoot the final shot with the tramp sitting in the circle of grass where the circus had once stood. But on the night before the shoot, the nine wagons needed were stolen by a group of university freshmen hoping to burn them in a bonfire. They were all arrested, but Chaplin declined to prosecute. A test print was shown on October 28th. But the reaction suggested more cuts and retakes. Chaplin decided to reshoot some of the tightrope scenes that he had filmed two years earlier. The divorce had left its mark. His face was now gaunt, his hair had turned mostly white. From now on, he would have to dye it for the screen. As the cut was finished, Chaplin commissioned composer Arthur Kay to compile a special score for the film. Chaplin, still a self-taught musician who could play the violin, cello, and piano, worked closely on the composition. Finally, on January 6, 1928, the circus opened in New York. Three weeks later, Sid Grauman put on its L.A. premiere at the Chinese Theater. The guests were entertained by a full menagerie of animals and sideshow performers. The film was, of course, well-received, with some critics championing it as a return to classic slapstick that wasn't overwhelmed by drama. At Hollywood's second Academy Awards, Chaplin received a special Oscar inscribed, quote, to Charles Chaplin for versatility and genius in writing, acting, directing, and producing 
the circus. The New Yorker published an article summing up the general public sentiment. Quote, If in order to produce films that are a public necessity the world over, he finds it indispensable to get into a mess with every designing woman who meets him, a grateful government should grant him a special dispensation from alimony and the punishment for bigamy with Flo Zigfield, the impresario of Zigfield's Follies known for its beautiful girls, retained at public expense to round the ladies up. For the rest of his life, Chaplin did everything he could to avoid the topic of his two-year marriage to Lita Gray. In his autobiography, he wrote more about the art of fishing for tuna than he did about Lita. Quote, For two years we were married and tried to make a go of it, but it was hopeless and ended in a great deal of bitterness. After paying her lawyers and giving $80,000 to her mother, Lita bought some property and built a house on Beverly Drive. Just a year after her divorce, Lita was offered a gig on the RKO vaudeville circuit, performing as a headliner act as a singer. Without any formal voice training, Lita agreed and became a successful touring singer. I marvel at the courage this took. I mean, after everything she went through, to step on stage without having ever sang in front of an audience before, knowing that everyone is thinking about your most embarrassing and traumatic sexual details— it's crazy. With her mother serving as the primary caregiver to Charlie Jr. and Sid, Lita went on to enjoy a 10-year career as a touring singer. Her life was filled with ups and downs. She was married three more times. When her singing career ended, she became a talent agent. She wrote a book in the 1960s titled My Life with Chaplin, an Intimate Memoir. But the publisher and ghostwriter chose to embellish the scandalous details of her marriage. Unfortunately, she needed the money and agreed. Finally, at the age of 90, Lita would publish another book titled Wife of the Life of the Party. For the first time, she told her side of the story free from outside influence. Her perspective and honesty are an incredible testament to her character, her resilience, and her ability to heal. In the end, she had this to say. He was two people. When he had the tramp outfit on and he felt funny, then he was funny. But as a serious man, he was a very serious man. I think Charlie's real love was uh, his character that he created, really. And anything that appeared to threaten that would bring out the worst in the man. And... Um, I think I finally figured out that that was the reason that was, that was his real love. Um, after my second boy was born, he seemed to uh, be a lot warmer and a lot more considerate and so forth. And uh, we had some interesting evenings together. But, uh, well, I mellowed over the years. And I don't have anything but, but pleasant memories, I think, now. And the things that aren't so pleasant, I've been able to account for, I think. And cut. On the next episode, Chaplin resists the sound revolution while making his greatest films yet. He then confronts the man who had been his mirror image for decades, Adolf Hitler. Behind the Slate is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. 
Hit us with the five stars. It really helps us out. If you have any questions, comments, if you just want to say hi, please shoot me an email at behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. You can follow me on our new Instagram at behindtheslatepod. And until next time, that's a wrap.